How's it going, and Happy New Year, everybody. This is Chris. Uh, welcome to episode 93 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, I don't know, what's going on with my throat? I think I'm in uh, just one of those weird, you know, ear, nose, and throat sort of uh, situations like I was in a few months ago here. Feels like I've been talking a lot, but I haven't. Uh, it's been uh, rather quiet on the uh, on the home front here. I haven't really been doing a whole lot of recording my voice on things outside of, uh, outside of this show, so don't know why my voice... Feels and probably sounds very tired, but uh, we'll do the best we can here. Today, we're going to be kicking off four straight episodes of Dawn of X Wave 2. And we're going to start with our, uh, our least favorite of the bunch here, Wolverine, Volume 7, Number 4. And this one had an October 2020 cover date. The story is called The Red Tavern, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Victor Bogdanovich, or Bogdanovic. Colors, Matthew Wilson. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, we got a bunch. Robinson with Lauren Amaro. White with Mark Basso. And Sobolski. Uh, cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale August 19th, 2020. Well, I, I guess I can actually say August 19th of last year at this point. How about that? Anyway, let's get right into it here. We pick up right where we left off last issue. Now, we could talk about things like pacing, considering we are talking about the vampire story, which was introduced in Wolverine number one. It was the second half of that uh, double-sized issue, which made me think that these stories were happening kind of concurrently, but I guess we're about to find out that they're not, because, uh, and I don't know when that story from issue one took place, but clearly it, it was in the past at some point, because we pick up Right where we left off from issue three here with uh, Wolverine meeting with the Quiet Council to be brought to task for swiping Magneto's helmet. If you remember, he did get Magneto drunk, took his helmet so he could sneak onto that weird Russian Krakoa thing and uh, fight a bunch of Russian people. You know, that was kind of the thing. The scene's a little cringy. Uh, Charles tries to reason with Logan, telling him, you know, why they need to work together. And Wolverine pretty much ignores him and makes a comment about how, you know, sometimes the ends justify the means. As in to say, everything worked out, so quit complaining. Then, you know, he gives Magneto back his helmet, and Magneto puts it on his head. And as he does so, Wolverine lets him know that he had used it for a toilet. That's another one of those lines that I'm sure started with the question of, Hey, wouldn't it be funny if... dot dot dot... And once again, the answer is no. No, that's not funny. Wolverine peed in Magneto's helmet? What is he? What is he? Five years old? This is stupid. From here, we go to our roll call. 
Wolverine, Magneto, who we won't see again, Professor X, who we also won't see again, and Omega Red, who I think is supposed to be a surprise, but here we are. Uh, he's also on the cover, so what are you, what are you going to do? Uh, double page spread of creds, then an info page. And I think it was Damien who said uh, before our Christmas break that Benjamin Percy might need an intervention when it comes to how many words he tries to cram into his info pages, because this is a shining example of exactly that. Uh, it's long, it's dull, and it's got a signature in Cyrillic. So is this Mikhail from the X-Force story that we're reading? Uh, maybe it's Omega Red, maybe it's Colossus? I feel like we've got a lot of prominent Russians uh, rushing around. Uh, what's most unfortunate about this is I, I don't even care who it is. Um, let's get back to comics here. We're up in rural Canada. It's a desolate area where Logan likes to visit with some regularity. You see, in this area, there's a bar, the Red Tavern. It's a really nasty place, a place you probably would never want to dock in the doorway of, but for someone like Wolverine, it's cozy enough. It's probably got that, uh, you know, casino carpet and butt smell, I'm guessing. Just looking at it, it's it's pretty uh, skeevy. Anyway, Wolverine enters, and the barman warns him that there's a big storm coming. So if Wolverine decides to stay, he's going to have to bunker down because they're probably about to be snowed in. Wolverine pops like five bucks and quarters into a jukebox, and he plays Whiskey Bent and Hellbound by Hank Williams Jr. Not a song I'm familiar with at all, but uh, one that another patron of this joint is not overly fond of. And he lets Logan know this by, uh, just like you do here, he breaks his pool cue over the back of his head. Naturally, this doesn't have much of an effect uh, it's enough to cause the barkeep to cock his shotgun from behind the counter and attempt to slow the escalation of this scene. Wolverine then headbutts the fellow, which bloodies his nose. The, the other guy, that is. The dude then wanders into the bathroom to, you know, clean himself up, right? Um, Wolverine asks the barman what he can tell him about his would-be assailant, and the barman shrugs. Doesn't know a thing about him. Logan notes that uh, he had a familiar scent that he just couldn't place. Just then, a police officer bursts into the joint, and he's all sorts of freaked out. He relays a story about seeing some sort of creature on the road. Now, there's a creature that he'd spooked with his headlights, but a, one creature that left a destroyed deer carcass behind. The officer, Jack Peterson, suggests that the only animal that can inflict this sort of damage would be a grizzly bear... But a grizzly bear wouldn't be able to flee the scene as fast as this thing did. Now, I don't want to pick nits here, because you know, I'm, I'm actually quite enjoying this issue up to this point, but we are in the Marvel Universe, right? I mean, there are critters, creatures, and monsters all over the place. Uh, Marvel Earth has dealt with, like, 85 flavors of alien invasion. That, and that, like, most of that's this year. And, I mean, we're about to deal with some symbiote stuff as well, so... We probably shouldn't try to make sense of, sense of this, right? Uh, again, not to pick nits. It's just hard to forget that this story takes place in, the f in a fantastical world where stuff like this happens. Anyway, we next get a good look at the other two patrons of this bar, and one looks like the Joker without his clown paint, and the other is a creepy old lady with three teeth in her head. The latter decides to start chatting our hero up, and she asks if he'll buy her a drink and or propositioner. After all, she's got, quote, three teeth and nothing to lose. 
I'm not sure how that comment actually works. Like, what does one thing have to do with the other? I, I mean, I guess in case we wanted an exact tooth count on this old bag, I guess we got one? Okay. Wolverine asks her if they'd ever met. And he tells her that uh, if so, she'll have to fill him in because his memory's, you know, all Swiss cheesed. He then begins to zone out, and he uh, gets all sorts of uh, out of sorts. He excuses himself to head into the bathroom to maybe splash some water on his face here and vomit. Just then, a loud crashing occurs, and the barman assumes that uh, the storm probably just knocked a tree over onto the building or something. Next up, an info page, and it's about the Mutant Trauma Support Group. And, uh, well, this is all about a support group for folks who have suffered from trauma stemming from mutant affairs. I wonder if our hero may have inadvertently stumbled into a meeting of this uh, clandestine organization. Uh, We do have rules for this group. We've got five of them, in fact. One, no hate speech, except toward mutants. Two, no doxing, except for mutants. Three, no spam, because there is an online component to this group. Four, use alpha code when discussing specific mutants, which I'm sure will throw everybody off the scent. Five, vengeance is the best medicine. Take that, penicillin. We rejoin Wolverine as he's about to toss his cookies into a bloody toilet. Too bad he doesn't still have Magneto's helmet, huh? Wait a minute, did I say that this toilet was bloody? Uh, Yes, I did. This toilet is covered in blood. And just off to the side, we see the source of it. It's that idiot who hit Wolverine with a pool cue a few pages back, and it looks like he's been eviscerated. Our man gets a better look, and he notes that this goofball had a tattoo of the Brotherhood Militia on his neck. I can't place the Brotherhood Militia. They sound familiar. I can't tell you where or when they appeared, but I'm sure they were a thing that existed. It's one of those things that's like... It's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't tell you exactly where they're from. Just then, Officer Jack enters the washroom and discovers the grisly scene. Wolverine tries to explain that the dude was already dead when he got there, but is shot in the neck by a trank dart before he can. Wolverine wakes up and he finds himself chained to a chair. It's made pretty clear here that our man did, in fact, stumble into a meeting of that mutant trauma group. Uh, These goobers, minus the cop, know that Logan is Wolverine, and also know that he's a mutant. We learn that he's stopped by the Red Tavern every week, once or twice a week, trying to, quote, play human, in their words. They declare him guilty of whatever it is he did, and prepare to consider sentencing via, quote, frontier justice. Officer Jack recognizes that Logan, as a mutant, has... Diplomatic immunity, the laws of Canada do not apply. But the trauma group, I mean, this is is frontier justice. They ain't hearing none of that. Logan then recognizes the Joker-looking guy as a patient from the Dunwich Sanatorium, which stemmed out of a storyline in Wolverine colon Weapon X, which was a series I never read from about ten years ago from when they were trying to... Like, they were trying to put four or five regular ongoing Wolverine books on the shelves every single month. Could you imagine what a horrible time that was? The Joker guy then eats a fly, which I guess is all the proof we need. The group decides that uh, since Wolverine is basically unkillable, they're just going to drop him into the icy lake, let him freeze, and live out his life sentence as though he's Captain America after World War II. And so, out to the lake we go. 
And it's here that we see our cover boy, our other cover boy, Omega Red. He's kind of lurking. And hey, that's a two Ben Percy books in a row with Omega Red on the cover. And hell, they actually both have Red in their story titles as well. I, I guess Marvel's really banking on us buying all of these books, aren't they? Okay, back on the ice. The barman fills Logan in on his secret origin. You see, back in the long ago, he was tending bar in Madripoor. Logan was involved in a bar fight, which resulted in this fella's wife being cracked in the head with a thrown chair. She would die a week later from the resulting blood clot. Which, yeah, I can totally see this dude wanting to get his pound of flesh out of Wolverine. And, uh, you know, for such a sobering revelation, our hero really doesn't seem to care. (laughs) He's not apologetic. He doesn't express any regret. He kind of just shrugs his shoulders, takes it in stride, which, uh, I mean, this is the guy we're rooting for. All right. Uh, Wolverine then turns to the old broad to ask what her story is, and uh, she's somehow tied in with Gorgon, or Gorgon, the captain of Krakoa who appeared to have, like, somehow snuck into the X-Books without me ever noticing. She says that he has mommy issues. Gorgon, that is. I don't know if that means that she is his mother or that he is a lover of hers. I... Don't think I really need to know or want to know. So with everything said, the ice where Wolverine sits is carved into with a chainsaw. They tell him his final sin will have been killing poor Fred over in the turlet. He stands firm that he had nothing to do with that. Then he, com- then he catches a familiar scent in the air, which causes him to freak the F out. Just then, Officer Jack's severed head bounces onto the ice. Uh-oh. Wolverine pleads with the barman to unchain him. Then the Joker-looking guy gets impaled by a tentacle. Then the old bag and the barman get impaled as well, and uh, duh, it's Omega Red. Arcady smashes up the ice, causing Wolverine to plummet into the drink. Now it looks like Omega is either holding him down there or pulling him back up, but we're going to have to wait until next issue to find out which. And it's worth noting, we got vampires on the ice too. That is Wolverine, volume, whatever the hell this is, number four. Next episode, Cable number three. Really looking forward to that. But let's talk about this issue. Let's talk about Wolverine number four. And I really enjoyed it. I can't believe I'm saying that. But uh, this was just like a really creepy, fun story. And I'm a really big fan of Bogdanovic, uh, who I feel fit the tone of this story a pitch perfectly. As much as I love Adam Cubitt's work, Victor was definitely a better fit for a story of this sort. I came into this one expecting more of what we got with the second half of the first issue, which, if you ask me, was underwhelming at best. This chapter, for the most part, feels almost completely detached from that story, and that is to its benefit. We got Wolverine having a run-in with some weirdo civilians, who just so happen to know who he really is, and they hate him for it. I I mean, that's a pretty neat thing. Especially when juxtaposed with the idea that Wolverine has been spouting on about how complacent, relaxed, and uncareful mutants have become since Krakoa became a thing. He's been saying that since since Jump Street, really. Just, I think it was X-Force number one, where he and Beast were uh, chatting after Beast got attacked by that monster on the island, that, that, that... I, I, I guess we can call it a beast. Beast was attacked by a beast on the island, and Wolverine was using that as a soapbox moment to say, like, hey, we're getting too soft. 
And here he is, he pretty much failed to follow his own advice And now he's paying for it Now I've talked a time or two About parts of a book that we've discussed Feeling like the first ten minutes of a Twilight Zone And this one definitely falls into that mold Only, unlike many other books This issue doesn't really lose that eerie and uncanny vibe It's really a good story, though uh, Maybe I'm a little bit lax on my internal scoring system Simply because I expected so little out of it to begin with Whatever the case, I was pleasantly surprised by what we got here Until the last couple of pages, of course Because that more or less reminded me that Yeah, eventually we're going to have to deal with those damn vampires Um, Though, that's something we'll worry about another day (laughs) You know, for now I'll just be happy that I read an issue of Wolverine And really enjoyed myself So uh, I'm hopeful for more like this As with a lot of the books that I'm keen on There really isn't a whole lot more to say, right? It's just, I liked it And uh, this is another case of that So that's all I got to say about Wolverine number 4 But before we get out of here, let's hop into the mailbag We're going to start with Damien who's talking about X-Factor number 1 he says, I, would, I feel like I should start by apologizing for falling behind in my ex-lapsed listening. It felt really weird to hear an episode without my feedback. It's been a bit of a mad month work-wise, and I had much less time to listen and reply. It doesn't help that we're into the period where I was only buying Marauders, so I have to actually go and read each issue on Unlimited before I listen. Ne- never worry about that. I mean, I, I'm always going to be here. <laughs> At least for the foreseeable future. These shows will always be here. I know... I know life can get busy, especially around the holidays it's a, it's a busy time, right? So, I mean, never worry about that But I am very, very happy to hear from you uh, Damien continues I've seen a lot of online comments about X-Factor Most of which herald it as the best of the X-Books And I really must be missing something as my response was more mixed And yeah, I'm right there with you uh, The hype for this book going into it um, was Was a... One of those, I was like almost too good to be true Because everybody was just talking so highly of it And usually for me, I mean it it could go one of two ways here It could actually be a fantastic book Or it could be a book written by someone who's active on social media And so everybody tells them whatever they do is the best thing in the world Because they like the engagement We've seen cases of both of those things So uh, I didn't know exactly what to expect I had high hopes Um... And for the most part, really, really enjoyed it Uh, Damien continues As you say, Williams has gathered a strong team of characters who play off each other well I also quite enjoyed some of the jokes, even though I am far from being an edgy teen Dakin's use of his sexuality as a replacement for a personality is something I've seen in young men who want to shock people There are unsettling elements to his pheromone power Can someone who is under his influence consent in any meaningful way? It seems the Star Fox, Star Fox problem might reoccur, and that's not even not something I even thought about. But it is uh, certainly a, a slippery slope, right? If uh, if Dakin or Dak, how do we say his name? I don't know. If Wolverine's son <laughs> is uh, is coercing folks into being attracted to him and wanting to do things with him, then. What does that mean? I don't want to say any four-letter words, but I mean, what does that mean? It's it is a scary situation. I do remember that coming up in uh, in people's commentaries on on Star Fox from over the over in the Avengers. It's a it's a 
it's a damn slippery slope and I mean, it is current year, so maybe it will be a topic they'll tackle. Who knows? I don't know that I actually want to read that story. But, uh, eh, you know, what, what, what can we do, right? And I appreciate the idea that uh, he's using this as a replacement for a personality because I think that's something that's easy to be done whether or not you're talking about sexuality, whether or not you're talking about anything in particular. It's easy to identify as something, right? Um, maybe by your occupation. You know, maybe that is what you are. If you're a teacher, a lawyer, an officer, that becomes what your personality is. It's what you lead with. With Dakin or Dakin, how do we say this guy's name? With this guy, um, it feels kind of like that. But at the same time, we had other people uh, referring to him as, as the bisexual something or another like twice in two word balloons in the same panel. So uh, he's, I think he's like given as good as he's getting here. He's using the powers. Maybe it's, maybe he thinks that that's expected of him since that's how people are greeting him. It's like, oh, you're the bisexual mutant. I, which (laughs) feels very, very, um, I don't know, awkward. I'm not sure. Maybe it's because I just don't talk to people in real life that I just don't, maybe I forgot how people talk. But this just didn't feel like natural conversation. Then again, I'm <laughs> I am by no means a normal conversationalist, so uh, we take that you know for what it's worth. Uh, Damien continues. Overall, I enjoyed this, but it didn't live up to the hype. I'm intrigued to see where it goes next. And by the way, you suggested that only 40-year-old men read comics. That isn't necessarily true, as I am 46. So, (laughs) point well taken, Damien. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) And I agree. Uh, I enjoyed it. It didn't live up to the hype that I had heard. Um, Which is unfortunate, right? It's, It's unfair to not... I think it's unfair to hold that against a book... But it's also so hard not to, right? If someone keeps telling you you need to see this movie or you need to listen to this album or you need to read this book and that's all you hear over and over and over again, anything short of absolutely mind-blowing perfection is going to feel like it's coming up short. So it's kind of weird, I guess. But uh, you know, taken as an issue and as a first issue... I thought it was great. Um, Taken for what I expected it to be, a little lacking, unfortunately. But we will, uh, you know, hold on to our optimism and we'll see how this goes uh, as we move into, you know, the X of Tens era. So uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on X Factor. Uh, Next, we've got two messages from Andrew Franklin about Giant Size Phantom X. He starts with, what? who is worse at aping Grant Morrison, Jonathan Hickman or Gerard Way? Oof, that's a toughie. Um, for folks who are unfamiliar with Gerard Way, uh, as a comics writer, he did the recent uh, couple of volumes, or couple of arcs, I guess, of Doom Patrol over at DC's Young Animal. He's actually the curator of the Young Animal line, which I take it to mean as though... Uh, uh, he's like an executive producer because I don't think he has much to do with anything over there, other than you know his name and his face being kind of the thing of the Young Animal line. Because uh, the thing about the Young Animal line is everybody was able to get their books out except him, so I, I don't know how much he actually had to do with any of it. 
His Doom Patrol is, as I've said before, Grant Morrison Tribute Band. Uh, Jonathan Hickman is the Grant Morrison Tribute Band who thinks he can do it better than Grant Morrison? Maybe? I mean, is that unfair to say? Uh, that's kind of the... That's kind of the feeling I get. Um, Gerard Way was annoying on Doom Patrol, but I don't think he tried to reinvent the wheel, where Hickman, I think, has taken a lot of the Morrison, Morrisonian elements here and being like, well, I could do this better. And, of course, I'm completely projecting there. Like I said, I don't know the man. Never will. So, who knows? But uh, who's worse at aping him? I think it's a tie. <laughs> they just do it in different ways. Andrew continues, If I knew more about Phantom X, maybe the story would have meant anything to me. Or maybe if I wasn't in in an insomnia fog right now, I would have appreciated what this was doing. I think we're supposed to assume that the two identical clones from the beginning of the story are Phantom X and the double he keeps going to see in the world. Except the babies had shapes on their forehead, one a circle and one a diamond. The double, the double he sees in the world doesn't have a shape on his forehead, and we never actually see Phantom X's forehead in this issue. I don't know if we ever have. I can't remember. <laughs> I really can't remember if we've ever seen Phantom X's head. This, that's how checked out on this character I am. I know we've seen, like, his mouth because he's eaten. I think he ate in this issue. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if he has the little, the little Dr. Manhattan circle or the Mr. Sinister Diamond. I don't know. Andrew continues. So is Phantom X the reject? That ju- that doesn't jive with what we're told about in his background, being raised in the world as a super soldier. I don't know if what we're supposed to be seeing here is... I don't know if this is a case where we're supposed to assume that Phantom X is lying 90% of the time. Like we never know exactly what's legit with him. Ah. Uh, Hmm, I because I feel like this is like the second or third origin story we're seeing for him, and and we don't see him very often. But every time we see him, it seems to be playing with the concept that his origin is a little a little bit more tweaked than it pre- was previously. And again, I'm not I'm not super knowledgeable on Phantom X. Uh, I know for a while there were like two or three of them running around. One of them was a woman. I. It was very, very strange stuff. Um, so yeah, I, my only, my headcanon, I guess, uh, is that Phantom X is a liar. And anything that we're getting from his mouth is a lie. And everything we're seeing that isn't being told by Phantom X is real. Maybe? I don't know. Andrew continues. Is he the one they kept? Uh, The story of being raised in the world could all be lies. Hey, there you go. Or it might hint at the reject being an anti-Phantom X, if he was kept alive and raised outside the world. Again, this could be old news from stories I've not read, and I agree. It could very well be old news from stories that either neither of us have read or I read and forgot, because it is possible. Uh, He continues, but I can't really get over the fact that the diamond on the baby's forehead looks exactly like Mr. Sinister's. Is this some big Hickman reveal? Will we get some sinister retcons? Do I just need sleep? Should I have read a wiki on Phantom X before reading this? Probably. Yeah, I thought about that too. Uh, (laughs) I try really hard not to to go to the wikis because, uh, well, for a couple of reasons. 
First of all, um, I've got stupid pride in that I think I should know things that I really have no right knowing. That's what makes me such a uh, difficult student. You know, I'll start a class on anything. Uh, I'll uh, I'll start a class on uh, uh, theoretical uh, learning styles, and I'll be annoyed with myself on day one for not knowing every single line in the book. It's one of my... It's a Chris problem. (laughs) It's a Chris problem in that... Uh, sometimes I'm too dumb to realize that I'm dumb And uh, sometimes when I'm reading a comic and I don't get something I really dig my heels in and I refuse to check the wiki Because I wouldn't have had a wiki growing up And I should be able to read these things without going to a wiki, right? Isn't that kind of the point? Wikis should be for research purposes only Not to follow a book that you just bought, right? Everything that you should... Need from a book Should be in the book you're reading You shouldn't have to have an internet connection To understand the book you just paid for It's uh, Chris problems Definitely Chris problems Uh, Andrew continues Not much to say about the art that hasn't been said before It's very good and kept me engaged in the book Hickman is still bad at comedy But the aim beekeeper at the end Made me chuckle a bit So until the world awakens and achieves a consciousness expansion that ascends linear space-time and melds with the cosmic unconscious, birthing a new awareness on all living beings, make mine X-lapsed. But that's not all from Andrew, because he also sent a message after listening to the episode here. And he says, Great episode covering giant-sized Phantom X. One thing I really dug was your comparison of Phantom X to Gambit, which makes sense. Mysterious, French-adjacent, trying too hard to be cool. I didn't make that connection while I was reading this, but I did keep thinking about Phantom X being a Morrison spin on Longshot. And first of all, thank you for... I, I Like I said a couple times now, I was worried that folks would really get annoyed at me <laughs> comparing Phantom X to Gambit. Uh, Andrew continues. Uh, this is regarding a Morris, Morrisonian spin on Longshot. He says, they're both outsiders, even among the X-Men. Both are from strange places removed from normal reality where the rules of our world don't apply. Both of these places are depicted as chaotic and surreal. They were both bred to be highly skilled, athletic, acrobatic combatants for a specific task that they rebel against. Both of their personal stories are hyper-focused on their place of origin, getting back to it and freeing it, destroying it, or whatever. Both have identity issues, either not knowing their full origins or being aware that they've been fed many lies about it. It might be a stretch, but this story kept making me think of Longshot and how good a Morrison take on him would have been in the 90s. Excellent points. Excellent points that I never even considered. Um, They do share a lot of similarities there. It's funny, Longshot is a character I've been trying to better familiarize myself with for a little while now. Um... As many of you know, I came into the X-Men after Longshot was, you know, he was gone already. Uh, he showed up uh, He showed up for like a two-part Mojo story, and then you really didn't see him. Um, I'm trying to even think when he, when he came back in a big way, I think it wouldn't be for many, many years. Uh, I think it was the Peter David X-Factor was like Longshot's return as a regular, or like a regular fixture in an X-Book. Because he just wasn't a thing for most of my collecting career. Of course, I've gone back and I've read the the Claremont run, which you know featured Longshot for bits and pieces, and I've read the uh, 
the miniseries, the uh, Nascenti and uh, Art Adams uh, miniseries, which I actually was just giving a reread to because I, like I said, I'm trying to refamiliarize myself with this guy, and just because uh, he's a character that is. I don't know, it's like a character, he's kind of a side character, but he's also very fascinating. He's he's one of those characters that makes me nostalgic for a time that I was never around, which is a weird thing to say, especially considering how little he loomed during my time as a reader. But, uh, you know, people's recollections of Longshot, and people's... Um, the fact that people really remember uh, and, and hold fondly the, uh, the era of X-Men where Longshot... Played prominently Makes me want to know more about him And so uh, I was Just recently reading through the miniseries again And uh, everything you said checks out It's it's very funny I never even put the two and two together But uh, thank you for that And thank you for sharing your thoughts On the uh, Giant Size Phantom X episode uh, We're going to wrap up With a theory from Evan Bevins He says This isn't as hot a take as Quote, the X-Men are all clones and uh, this goes back to an earlier theory that Evan floated, saying that uh, all of the X-Men are actually in stasis uh, underground in Krakoa, and all the characters we've been seeing die over and over and over again are just clones, which is a very interesting theory. A very interesting theory. But Evan says, this isn't as hot a take as that, but it just occurred to me listening to you talk about broken toys and the obvious reboot mechanism back in episode 65... That Destiny seemed to have a knack for leaving cryptic clues and knowing a lot more than she conveyed. What if, in telling Mora that she only had a certain number of lives left, she lied? I don't remember the numbers, but she said, You've got ten, maybe eleven. What if she subtracted one? What if she gets Mora convinced that she's on her last life? She's gotta go for broke, and we get Hox Pox Docs. Then, Mora is born anew, which wouldn't necessarily require mu- wiping everything away, just everything from House of X number one on. Destiny comes to her and says, now that you got that out of your system, here's what we're going to do. And there's the next era of X-Men. That seemed more exciting when I first started typing this message, but at least that's the way you can hit a reset, where at least the lessons Mora learned in Hox Pox Docs will count. And, uh... That's an excellent theory. That's a great theory. And I think... I don't remember which episode. I wish I could point to the episode, but I think we floated something sort of like that. Not not as specific as that, but we did pick up on the cues from Destiny uh, in her face-off with Mora uh, way back in... What was it? House of X number two, where she says, yeah, you've got ten lives, maybe eleven. And then we know we're on Mora's 10th life now, and we talked about what might happen when Mora dies. Like, is this, uh, does nothing happen? Does she just die? Does the Marvel Universe reset? Or is she born again because Destiny was off by one? I think there's a, there's a lot of ways that can go, and I think it's brilliant that we do have so many options here. Um... You know, I, I, you know me. I've been giving Hickman a lot of, a lot of clapback for high concept, but the idea of a back door that can go any number of different ways is really a brilliant, a brilliant concept for a story like this that is so um, different from what came before, and something that'll be so much, 
it'll be quite difficult to raise the stakes much more than this. At least organically or naturally or without, you know, bringing Onslaught back or something. But uh, really good theory. Really good theory. I'm, I would almost bet that we're going to have s- something along those lines, right? Um, that's the coolest thing about, about the, the doing this show and reading these books is that we don't have the answers and there are so many viable options out there and so many interesting ways it could go that we're just going to keep it's just going to keep percolating in our heads until it finally does happen right um it's it seems like everything is on the table and everything could make sense um and it's being framed perfectly to make sense no matter which way they go with it so thank you so much for that theory and if anybody else has any theories please please feel free to let me know and as a matter of fact, we can go right into plugs right now, uh, because that was the last uh, piece of mail for this episode. So if you would like to get a hold of me and maybe send me a theory or two, feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or at 90sxmen at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us about anything you want. Theories included over on Facebook at our little group, 90s X-Men. And you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. So that'll do it for today. want to thank everyone for sharing their time with me today. And uh, once again, wish everybody a happy new year. Hope every- I hope this episode reaches everybody happy, healthy, and safe. So, uh, so until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 96 of X-Lapsed. And, uh, hmm, it's going to be a potentially divisive episode of X-Lapsed where, uh, 
Some of you may not like what I'm going to say, and, uh, well, some of you might like what I'm going to say here, because the book we're going to discuss, I'll come right out and say it, I didn't care for it. Um, not going to say it was bad, not going to say I hated it, just going to say it wasn't for me. But, uh, we'll get into it here, and we will discuss that as we go on. Uh, now that book in question is X-Factor, Volume 4, Number 2. It's had an October 2020 cover date. The story is called... Mojoverse Sonata XF3 Op 45 Dance Macabre <sighs> Written by Leah Williams with art by David Baldion Colors Israel Silva Letters VCs Joe Caramagna Designs Tom Muller, the head of X's Hickman Edits Bisa White Sabolsky Cover price $4 And went on sale August 26th of 2020 Now we open With an odd figure zapping down Krakoa with a package now, the five, you know, the five, they noticed that something was moving outside, but they just assumed that it was a kid sneaking around. The five actually do get a couple of word balloons here, which we don't get to see all that often. Usually they're just in the background doing their thing. So it's nice to actually hear from them. Uh, we get the gist here that Proteus appears to be a little self-conscious about needing a husk, which, I mean, stands to reason, makes sense. We jump to the next morning where Aurora shows up at the boneyard. And wouldn't you know it, there's a package addressed to X-Factor on the doorstep. Roll call. Northstar, Polaris, Dakin or Dakin, I, I, somebody's gonna have to correct me on that. Prodigy, Prestige, iBoy, Aurora, and Kyle? Remember Kyle? Yeah. Double page spread of creds with our ridiculously long and extremely precious issue title. So I guess, uh, maybe this one actually needed both pages. Let's go back to comics. Northstar swoops down to hug his recently returned sister and is soon joined by the rest of X-Factor, including Dakin, 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 who wastes no time getting into his gimmick. Aurora then goes to hand over that package, but winds up dropping it, and whatever was inside it shatters. Since this is a Dawn of X book, it should come as no surprise that this contents was booze. You tired of this yet? Yeah, me too. Although, if you were to look at it, it very well may be motor oil, maple syrup, maybe blood. It's viscous, is what I'm trying to say. Amazing Baby starts lapping it up, but Rachel and Prodigy figure out that whatever this is, it's A, drinkable, and probably something they can get a buzz off of, and B, evidence. And uh, Rachel drinks two forensics, which, as both an X-Men fan and a student of forensic psychology, causes my body to... Go into like a struggle where it doesn't know whether or not it wants to cringe or just shut down. Also in the package are a pair of shoes. I think. Maybe they're Crocs. Uh, the art here is maybe a bit too cartoony. Now these shoes have a bunch of sponsorships lo sponsorship logos on them, but nobody on our team could recognize them from anywhere. And so Prodigy employs the X-Factor multi-dimensional search engine and is able to deduce that these logos are of mojo worldly origin and it looks like there's been a murder in the mojo verse which sucks on several levels um north star size which is about my reaction as well it's worth noting that during this scene aurora claims that her final memories before dying were of being in the washington state area which i mean just how often is professor x backing up cerebro it seems like he has a real knack for doing it right before someone dies Seems a little convenient, but what are you going to do? 
Northstar then proclaims that they'll be heading out in five minutes. Rachel asks Aurora to look after Amazing Baby while they're away. Before they jam, uh, Prodigy subscribes the Boneyard to Headshot TV, which is a Mojo World streaming service. He uses Dakin's credit card and iBoy's cell phone number to set up the account. I'm not sure why we needed to know those details, but hey, it's all good. Then, bada-bing, bada-boom, our team steps through a gateway and arrives in Mojo World. So, I guess there's a gateway to Mojo World then. Uh, We may have missed that story. Also, our team has new costumes and, uh, well, they are what they are. Uh, Polaris especially seems to have an odd one where she's got a constant crown of, like, magnetic power over her head. I'm not sure if that's supposed to be visible, but it's there every time we see her in costume, so it's kind of hard to miss. The team is met by some Mojo Worlders who ask who their sponsor is. Then Polaris drops something and shatters it? I'm not sure exactly what we're supposed to be seeing here. The Mojo Worlders are annoyed that, quote, Earth Muties can be part of Headshot TV even without sponsors or something, even though we're about to find out that isn't the case, I think. We jump back to the Boneyard where Amazing Baby gives Aurora a tour of the facilities. It's a, it's a cute page because Amazing Baby's there, and that's uh, probably my favorite part of this book. Then we get a sort of kind of info page all about Headshot TV. Now, it's a live stream deal where shows are voted on by Mojo Worlders. For what? You got me. And so, we jump to our team's audition streams, complete with cringe-inducing comment sections. So, uh, just like the real world YouTube and Twitch, then. Um, Now, Polaris is met with incredulousness. The viewers feel that she lacks the gravitas to actually be Magneto's daughter. Northstar just stares into the camera. Prodigy is called gay by one commenter, but is corrected with the fact that he's actually bi, because as we all know, that's his most important character trait. Uh, Dakin prepares to whip out his penis on on stream, that's not a joke. Rachel, like Northstar before her, just stares into the camera. And iBoy is mocked for being iBoy. The scene wraps up, and we learn that, with the exception of Dakin, X-Factor has passed the audition. You see, Dakin, 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 proved to be too stressful for the viewers. Northstar questions Dakin, 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 who makes it pretty clear that he bagged the audition on purpose so he can head back to the boneyard and start, well, boning Northstar's sister. It's worth noting that Aurora is actually watching this scene play out on Headshot TV from the boneyard, and she's a little bit intrigued that uh, Dakin, Dakin, finds her uh, sexy. After this, X-Factor is told that they need to pick a sponsor. Um, Okay, we get a page of comedy about pressing one to choose a sponsor, which, I don't know, before finding out that Mojo himself will sponsor them. Now, Mojo is drawn as having a very unfortunate slit right right below his belly button. It's wildly unpleasant to look at. Mojo claims to love the X-Men, though he wishes that some more A-listers would have shown up for this call. Northstar calls Mojo out on killing a mutant. Remember, there's been a murder in the Mojoverse. Mojo denies it. Polaris then flips Mojo's weird spider-chair gimmick thingy upside down, which is enough to get him to confess. But first, he tells us about the top five streamers on Headshot TV. And so we get an info page about the ratings, which don't really make all that much sense without the context of what which streamers each logo represents. The one is definitely spiral-themed. Uh, the rest, who knows. 
Mojo then spills the beans that a dumb mutant girl died while competing for a top streaming spot on Spiral's showcase. And so Prodigy scans the area, finds out where Spiral's showcase is, and North Star and Polaris fly in that direction. Only there's like this electrical net surrounding it which zaps them both and sends them to the ground. They wind up crashing into a streaming studio full of Mojo World dorks. They may even be the same ones that we came across after emerging from the gateway back at the beginning of the issue. The rest of the team shows up, and it looks like we're about ready for a showdown. But that's going to have to wait until next issue, because we wrap up back at the Boneyard, where Aurora and Amazing Baby are watching this all play out on Headshot TV. Northstar's husband arrives home, and thankfully they introduce him as Kyle, because nobody knows this dude's name. Aurora invites him to have a seat and watch the show, and that's it. That's where we end it. Uh, Next episode, X-Men number 11 which ties into both Empire and X of Tens. I mean, it literally has the branding for both on the cover. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, But first, let's talk about this issue, and I'm not going to keep you very long here. Um, I do have a question. Like, uh, I read the first issue of this not too long ago, and I came away with it, came came away from it, uh, positive. And it makes me wonder, did I suddenly become like a really old man? I did, in fairness, have a birthday between reading X-Factor number one and number two. But did it age me that much? Because, uh, yeah, this wasn't for me. This wasn't for me. Um, am I just too old for this? Am I too out of touch for this? Am I missing the genius of this? Um, I don't know. I, I, we, we talk a lot about stakes on this program and how the stakes have shifted, the stakes have changed, stakes are what they are. But I feel like the purpose of this book is to prove that everything's a joke. Um, and I mean, we are in Mojo World, so that stands to reason that it's going to be a little weird. Whatever the case, though, I feel like we're taking it a step even past that, to where it's almost making a statement on the futility and the unimportance of everything. And I uh, I don't like that. I don't like that. Um, this issue really wasn't for me. That's okay, though. Not every issue is going to be for me. But uh, hopeful that this will come back around. I, I Like I said, I did enjoy the first issue. There were some bits that really got under my skin of that first issue. But uh, maybe those parts were supposed to get under my skin. I don't know. This one, though, I mean, it took me several tries to get through this issue because... The cringe was real for me. Um, And, you know, that's not to say that if you like this issue that you were wrong to like it. Just like it's to say I didn't like it, I'm not wrong not to like it. There's different things for everybody out there. Me being a completionist and an idiot, I'm going to keep up with this, even if I'm not digging it. And if you are digging it, please feel free to let me know here. Maybe, Maybe I am missing something. I'm always open to the possibility that I am. You know me. If it comes down to my opinion versus someone else's, I always assume that I'm wrong. So, uh, you know, if you have any sort of insight on this issue that you'd like to share with me, please, please feel free to do so. Also, if you agree, don't don't hesitate to uh, reach out to because I, I need all the validation I can get. Uh, really, not much more to say. Uh, wasn't for me. Wasn't for me. Uh, I, I'm, and I mean, it seems like a, almost a perfect storm. Of things that I don't care about I'm not a fan of Mojo World That's not a fault of the story It's not a fault of the creative team Mojo World 
it only works for me in very, very rare occasions. Um, I'm not a fan of current year stuff. I, like, I don't need streaming on in my comics, even though, you know, it is a sign of the times. So maybe I just have been left behind here, but I'd prefer not to have to deal with that kind of stuff. That's just me, though. Not a fault of the story, not a fault of the creators. Just a Chris problem. The art here was a little obtuse at times. Um, that's not to say it was bad. It wasn't bad. There were some really, really good-looking uh, panels and pages in here. Just some of them were a little bit wonky. Uh, Polaris dropping something or smashing something. I couldn't tell if she accidentally, you know, Butterfingers dropped something or if she slammed something to the ground. It wasn't clear. Uh, the package. Who knows what was in that package? It was wet. That's all we know. <laughs> it was wet and maybe drinkable. At least, you know, the, the, the Warwolf puppy drank it. It's just not as clear as it could have been, perhaps. Um, this is one of those issues where I almost feel like uh, this is Excaliburian in that I feel like we're at that disadvantage where I feel like we might have missed something or I feel like I missed something or I'm just too dense to realize that we didn't. Whatever the case, yeah, this issue wasn't for me. That's really all I got to say about it. But before we move on to the mailbag here, this is the final Dawn of X Wave 2 number 2. So let's hit up our power rankings here. We'll, we'll rank our, our four Wave 2 books here. I gotta say, the best one out of the Wave 2 number 2s was Cable. Uh, the surprise hit of, uh, of Dawn of X Wave 2. I never thought that I'd be digging a Cable book as much as I am and uh, couldn't be happier to be completely wrong. Uh, you know, my, my preconceptions were that this was going to be a slog of a book. You know, it's Cable. Um, I've been reading Cable books for 25 years, you know, over 25 years. And they always kind of disappoint, uh, with, with, with some exception. I, should, uh, I shouldn't make a blanket statement like that, but they're usually underwhelming. Um, this run on Cable has been phenomenal. Really, really good stuff. Uh, the second best book of the Dawn of X Wave 2 number 2 is Hellions. Hellions was a lot of fun. Uh, three, Wolverine. And uh, Wolverine only gets the third spot because I cared for this issue of X-Factor that little. <laughs> I never would have guessed that Wolverine wouldn't be in the fourth spot, but here we are. So, best of the, best of the bunch, Cable. Then Hellions. Then Wolverine. Then X-Factor. With that out of the way, uh, I do, you know, I, I solicit all of your opinions on the Wave 2 number 2s. If you'd like to share, please feel free to do so. Agree, disagree, whatever. All works for me. Now let's head into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who is talking about a book I wasn't sure I was going to cover um, the feedback for. Uh, this is from our Merry X Lapsed, a little break, our little hiatus that we took Christmas week. And uh, he's talking about X-Men Volume 1, number 98, from back in 1976. Wasn't sure if I was going to cover these or maybe do a sideshow just to cover all the Christmas stuff, but, yeah, I, I, you know, Christmas was only a little while ago, and I already miss it. So let's do some Christmas. Why not? Now, Damien says, I have to start by letting you know that I wholeheartedly agree with the decision to go off into Christmas land for a week. I'm hoping we're going to get to the Australian treasure story sometime this week. And we did not. <laughs> we did not get to that story, but uh, it was in the pile. It was in the pile. Um, the thing with that is that 
we're gonna we're gonna touch on this a little bit as I get through Damien's message here. But when I read X Men books from different eras, it's kind of like that whole uh, the potato chip quandary, right? You can't just have one. And if I'm gonna read something from uh, the Outback era, I'm gonna want to read a lot more of it. So it wasn't. It wasn't time efficient for me to do that one because there was so much I would have wanted to explain about the status quo, how they got there, and I just thought that I would be doing the issue itself a disservice by talking about everything that surrounded it. That said, I do want to talk about that one. So, if we're still doing this show in July and we do the uh, we do a Merry X Lapsed in July sort of special, expect that one to show up for sure. Now, Damien continues. You also caused me to go to YouTube to view a certain Muppet video again. (laughs) For folks who aren't aware, I did do a little bit of tweaking on our theme music here. Uh, Our theme music for the show is The Talking Heads, uh, Once in a Lifetime. And I found a Kermit the Frog version that was on the Muppet show back in the long ago, uh, doing doing that same song. And I thought it might be fun to do a little bit of a change-up on our theme music for the special week. So I did the Kermit the Frog once in a lifetime for the intro, and instead of Michael McDonald doing Sweet Freedom at the end, I did the Kids Incorporated take, which is mind-bogglingly bad, but a lot of fun at the same time. So that's what Damien is alluding to here. He continues, Did I ever tell you about my childhood Muppet obsession? Apparently, when I was five or six, I would tell people that when I grew up, I was going to marry Miss Piggy. No one was surprised when I grew up, grew into a great big gay. And that's funny. <laughs> Can't say as though I have uh, ever had a, you know, a crush or anything on a, on a Muppet. I'm trying to think if there are any. And uh, no, I, I can't come up with a single one, unfortunately. But that is a very cute story. Um, Damien continues, I never read this story before. I have the issues before and after in the classic X-Men reprints, but I miss this one. Uh, Wolverine's Widow's Peak really is a thing. Fortunately, Dave Cochran was famous for changing things after he saw them in print, or it may have remained. It's odd how new and flexible all characters are, but already Claremont is starting to give them their own character traits. The revelation about Wolverine's claws is a sign of how quickly they were developing. And yes, Wolverine um, definitely went to the school, the Eddie Munster school of uh, of shoe polish widow's peaks for this issue. Uh, his widow's peak is like down to like between his eyebrows. It's really, really grotesque. But uh, but yes, um, we get the revelation in this issue uh, that, and I totally spaced it as I was reading it. That Wolverine's claws are part of his body and not part of his gloves, which, you know, hindsight being what it is. It's hard to remember that there was a time where that wasn't just obvious, where it wasn't apparent. So when I see Wolverine slicing at people without his without his mitts on, you know, I, I, I don't think twice about it. When I get to the next page and Banshee is looking at him like, holy cow, those are part of your body. It, it all kind of, kind of comes together and it's like, wow, this was a huge revelation. And like Damien said, this is pretty early, right? This is issue, what, 98? And the... The new X-Men started in 94, so they haven't been doing this very long, and already we're, we're really... These are seminal stories, and it's it's really, really cool. Damien continues. It's also interesting to see the introduction of the high evolutionary plotline. Thank God they rejected that one. Here, here. Um, the uh, the plotline, uh, allegedly, or 
I, I guess it's not even allegedly. I think it, people are on record as saying this was a possibility that Wolverine was going to be revealed as an evolved Wolverine, like as in the animal. And uh, thankfully, they did not do that because that would have been horrible. Damien continues. I like the fact that it's possible to believe that Peter Corbeau swam that 200 miles as we're given no information of how he got to the mansion. It seems to be key, it seems in keeping with his presentation. In summary, I love this issue. You mentioned wanting to keep reading, and I have to admit that I kept going on Marvel Unlimited after this issue and got as far as Jamaica Bay. I love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah, like I said earlier, it's it is very much a the potato chip deal, right? It's like you get through this issue and it's you just want to keep going because it's such a special time in the uh, I was just going to say the X books but it's such a special time in comic books in general where everything was just I don't know everything was just coming together everything was possible the stories were they weren't quite as cynical as they are now uh, we did have soapy elements which are I, I love the soap opera elements of these books but at the same time, they didn't take themselves quite as seriously. They, were, they weren't ashamed of being comics. They weren't cynical about the world. It was just a different time. It was a magical time. And uh, the fact that there was a great big Christmas tree in the middle of it, uh, it, it, you know, it helps with the magic, I guess. But uh, thank you so much for, for tuning in during the, the special week, the Christmas week here. And uh, if anybody out there ever needs a little bit of Christmas in your day, those are there. Those are there, and uh, they've been included on the xlapsed.chris's on Infinite Earths page for easier access. So, uh, you know, after a little while, they're going to be completely buried on the main feed. So uh, they'll be easy to find if you ever want to find them. So uh, thank you for that. Next, we're going to move on to an email from Andrew Franklin. He's talking about cable number three. He says, I was wondering to myself, while reading this issue of Cable, how much of my enjoyment of this title is just from the artwork. Not that this was a bad issue at all, but Phil Noto's art is just such a pleasure to look at in every panel, uh, that every panel becomes that much more engaging. I don't mean to diminish Jerry Duggan's writing, but I think if this was done in a more house style, it would be missing a lot of the magic that makes this book work. No splash page fights here, even the brief tussle with Cable and the Space Knights has such a wonderful pace and dynamicism to it that it doesn't feel perfunctory or like page filler. I love how expressive he draws the characters' faces. There may be something to that. Um, I think, like I've said before, Jerry Duggan should be, should be head of X in my books here because it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. I don't know how much... Taking Phil Noto away would uh, would do. Um, he certainly is a value added addition. Of course, I mean he is just phenomenal. He is wonderfully talented here. I don't know, like if we were to take a David Baldion from X Factor and put him on that book, I don't know how it would have uh, how I would receive it. Um, I'd like to think I'd receive it similarly because I think the story is very good. But uh, but yeah, I mean Noto is just on a whole. Another level here I feel like this is one of the better marriages In comics right now Noto and Duggan are just killing it So really really solid stuff Andrew continues Art aside I enjoyed this issue I like how Duggan writes these Galadorian knights They're not treated as jokes But we're not being hit over the head With the serious hammer either And they've got a few, a few good lines that made me laugh 
Duggan is funny, and he knows how to write humor in a way that translates off the page. That's why I wasn't worried when Ryan Reynolds, or I mean Deadpool, came into the story. I think Deadpool is fine. My preferred fourth, fourth wall breaker is She-Hulk, but he was used well here. I thought his banter with Cable was funny. And it's true. It's true. I, uh, I was shocked that, uh, when the revelation came that Deadpool was going to be in this issue, even though his mask is on the cover, like, Kid Cable's actually standing, like, right in front of Deadpool's mask on the cover, and I didn't notice that. Probably because I've been looking at our, you know, our X-lapsed art, which is in sepia tone, (laughs) and it wasn't completely clear that it was Deadpool's mask, but, uh, I didn't know that that was coming, so... When he showed up, a little bit of trepidation, right? Because the last I, last time I read Deadpool actively was uh, during one of the Marvel Nows. And I kind of made reference to this while I was talking about this issue. It was during one of the Marvel Nows where he was sharing a body with a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. Because of course he was, because S.H.I.E.L.D. was friggin' everywhere back then. And they still might be for all I know outside the X-Books, but... I'll let the other books have them because I hate S.H.I.E.L.D. (laughs) S.H.I.E.L.D. is boring. S.H.I.E.L.D. has sucked so much of the magic and the joy out of the Marvel Universe that if I never see S.H.I.E.L.D. again, probably be a little too soon. But put S.H.I.E.L.D. on the moon with the Inhumans, then blow up the moon. Perfectly fine with me. But I was surprised at how well Deadpool came across here. And Duggan, like you said, he is funny here. And it's, it's this weird blend of subtle humor and... Deadpool zaniness that just works so well. The banter with Cable was funny. Him calling uh, the, the cuckoo bummer was funny. It's just good stuff. Andrew continues. Not much else to say about this issue, though. It moved the plot along, and I'm happy for the ride. We got to see Teen Cable, or is it Kid Cable, killing OG Cable? Was this scene new or just new to me? Makes me wonder if the old Cable we saw in the previous issues is OG Cable or an older version of Kid slash Teen Cable. And that is a big question, isn't it? I don't know who the old man Cable is in this book, but uh, that scene is, um, I'm guessing that scene is new to you because it does take place during the extinction, is it extinction? Uh, You know, extermination. Yeah, extermination miniseries that is still sitting just a little bit to my left here, waiting to be read eventually. But uh, that was the storyline where Kid Cable makes his debut and allegedly... The time-displaced, you know, 60s X-Men, the the young X-Men, are sent back to wherever the hell they came from. Though I don't know that they actually were ever shown going back to wherever they came from. I don't know. We'll we'll get there. We will get there one of these days. As soon as I can figure out an interesting or half-assed creative way to make a portmanteau out of X-Lapsed and Extermination. So we'll we'll put a a pin in that for now. But we will get there. Uh, But again, I don't know... Those, uh, you know, the older Cable who was uh, shooting things in the face and fighting, like, giant enemy crabs over the past couple of issues. I don't know who that is, or where that is, or when that is. So, that's going to be a fun one to find out about uh, as we work our way through this one. Andrew wraps up with, That's all I've got. So, until Cable catches Quentin Choir fooling around with one of his girlfriends and kills him for the umpteenth time, make my next lapsed. Well, thank you so much for writing in, and yeah, I'm sure it'll happen, because Quentin Guire has to die at least once in every, you know, 18 or so pages, so I guess Cable killing him is as good as anybody killing him, right? But thank you so much. Uh, we're going to wrap up 
with a letter from our friend Evan Bevins, who's answering a question I asked back in the long ago, or maybe about a month ago, having to do with times that you jumped off the X-Men. That's a question I posed to the folks to share with me when you guys left the books. You know, a lot of us talk about when we discovered the books. You know, that seems to be, you know, one of the first questions you ask another comic fan is, you know, hey, how did you discover this this crew, this team, this creator? When did you, you know, when did you give it a shot? What did you like about it? Why'd you stick around? But one of the things that also gets asked a lot, but maybe not quite as much, is, hey, why did you leave, right? I think a lot of us have those stories of when we walked away from a property, from a character, from a creator. You know, it's part of the hobby process, right? It's just... It ebbs and it flows, and uh, some of us are there for life, some of us are there for most of the life, and some of us just come and go, and uh, we just dig things when we dig them and don't when we don't. So Evan's going to share his story here, and he says, I know I'm about a month behind your call for jumping off points, but what's more X-Men than a little time travel? Maybe a space adventure with a pit stop in other world. I kid, I kid. After dabbling in X-Comics here and there, I got sucked in by the Executioner song. I stayed with X-Force through number 75, in part because it was the one I was able to get a complete run of. But with Shatterstar departing and the art not being to my taste, I was thinking about dropping it when issue 74 came out, with the team facing off against Strife in the afterlife. That reinvigorated my fandom, but I missed issue 76 when Shatterstar came back. I picked up issue 77, which set up a weird story that just sort of ended. I don't remember the specifics, and I don't think I have the issue anymore, but it felt like the first part of a multi-part story that didn't interest me, but it was just a fill-in issue. Or like this plot about weird things happening to kids in a small town was set up, and then X-Force left town. So that was it for me in X-Force. Now that is a issue I remember, um, because the cover looked something like a... Maybe a Norman Rockwell well painting? Maybe? I know the uh, the logo was uh, stylized for that issue, and it was like something like City of Lost Children or something like that, and I think uh, it had Boom Boom like on a swing or something like that. But I do remember that issue you're talking about there. And uh, it's interesting that as you were gearing up to leave the, uh, the X-Force book is when I came back to the X-Force fold here. I, I told that story on... An issue of Chris's on Infinite Earths where post moving from New York to Arizona, that's when I rediscovered comics. And I rediscovered comics through X Force number 71, the first issue of the, the road trip era, which uh, was so shockingly different from the X books that I had left behind two years prior, where everything was just a huge event, everything felt very, you know, imagey, uh, for lack of a better term. And I had just grown very tired of it. But seeing this X-Force with with art that I actually did enjoy. I, I liked Adam Polina's work. I didn't like his work maybe a year or two before that. Because it's kind of a perfect storm. A lot of artists really suffered, in my opinion, when Marvel shifted to that awful, horrible, glossy paper. Uh, the stuff that looks like it was left out in the sun to blister for a while. Just not a good... It didn't translate the art so well. But by the time X-Force number 71 came out, they were back to that sort of like a hybrid newsprint. Kind of what DC is using nowadays. Where it's not super slick glossy, but it's also not newsprint. It's somewhere in the middle. Or just on a whole different plane, I suppose. 
So X-Force was on that kind of paper. All comics were on that kind of paper around that time. And I thought it really did the art really good service. And Polina was doing... I don't know if I want to say a manga-inspired look. But it was a... It was definitely a different look, but I thought it worked really well for the younger characters and for the story they were trying to tell here. With you know the kids on a road trip, they get tangled up with the mob. They it's really they go to Burning Man. It's just a lot of fun, um, and that's what reinvigorated my entire love for the X Men books. And if you asked me back then if uh, if I'd ever pick up an X Force book. X-Force would have been the fourth X-Men book I would have picked up Because I would have picked up, you know, Uncanny, Volume 2, or X-Factor Before I'd ever pick up an issue of X-Force But there was something about that issue, something about that cover That just, uh, brought me back Now, Evan continues On Uncanny and Adjectiveless X-Men, I stayed well into college I dropped them when I found Claremont's return unsatisfying But quickly jumped back in and filled in the blanks When I heard Joe Casey and Grant Morrison were coming aboard Morrison's JLA to me is the gold standard of superhero comics, and Casey's pitch for the X-Men in a Wizard special convinced me that he'd be the right man for the job. Plus, I had seen him in some panels at the pre-Wizard World Chicago Comic Con, so I felt a connection. But as I kept getting uncanny and new X-Men, I realized that after I finished each issue, I was in at least a slightly worse mood than when I sat down to read it. I finally came to the conclusion that there was just no point in spending money on something I wasn't enjoying. I liked a lot of the ideas Morrison presented, and his impact on the X-Men, X-Realm remains important to this day, but it just didn't land right with me. Cyclops mercy killing a guy in one of the first issues really set a bad tone for me. I did eventually read his run through the library and might go revisit it again sometime. And yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, the Ugly John scene is what you're uh, referring to here, and I think it was in Morrison's very first issue, the uh, first part of E is for Extinction. Where we have Ugly John, he's just a... I guess he was just a useless mutant with just... I guess ugliness as a power? I don't know. Uh, kind of like a, a Morlock with even less powers than a regular Morlock. I don't know. But yeah, Cyclops is... He like tells him to look into his eyes and then he kills him. <laughs> and it's funny because... I don't think I've ever stopped to think about that before. Uh, right Before right now. Before uh, getting this message. Because... It does seem very much out of character, and it makes me wonder if, right before that, uh, Cyclops had been merged with Apocalypse in a very, very, very bad story, and he'd been dead for a little while, and then they did the search for Cyclops, which, you know, Marvel president Bill Jemis said should have never been a thing because it was pointless and useless. But uh, I wonder if this was supposed to be a... A sign that there was still some apocalypse in him? I, I don't know. I I really have never thought about that scene more than I'm thinking about it right now. It was just sort of something that happened and set the tone. It was like, okay, that's that's the X-Men now. So I would have never considered it to be quite off-putting, but I could totally see why. I could totally see that now. And that's that's very interesting. Uh, and I mean, we've talked we've talked a bit about these eras, um, the Claremont return. We've talked about that. Uh, we've talked about Joe Casey. We've talked about uh, Grant Morrison, of course. But a very weird time in the X books, and it's interesting to see how uh, you know we talk about coming and going in the fandom, and it's weird to see 
bits and pieces of um, of lore and continuity and just of history that have different effects on people. Where I, I've talked to people who never would touch an X Men book until the Morrison run, and then they were off to the races, right, and couldn't read anything but the Morrison stuff. And then I'm reading from people who loved the Claremont return, and when it was announced that Casey and Morrison were coming, that's when they jumped off, or they tried, and then they jumped off after that. So it's very, very interesting that uh, that we, we're just coming at this from all different angles. It's it's very, very cool stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoy doing this show so much, because we do get to see these things through you know, other people's point of views and other people's experiences, and it's it's very fulfilling for me. But uh, I'm a very boring guy, so I might find I might find some of the more droll things in life to be fulfilling. But I'll leave that for you to decide. Evan continues. For a while, I considered Lopdell's Dream's End as my personal X Men series finale, and Whedon's Astonishing Run as the best reunion movie ever although it relied heavily on Morrison's contributions, like Emma Frost becoming a full-fledged X-Man and the school being an actual school, not just a base for the team. But I would drop in now and then, with Wolverine and the X-Men being my longest extended stay. I bought Hawks and Pox and was planning to give X-Men and Excalibur a shot, but real-life stuff got in the way. But thanks to Hoopla, Comixology, and Marvel Unlimited, I can follow along on a delayed basis. And thanks to X-Lapsed, I have a greater incentive to do so with all of it, even titles that wouldn't have drawn my money on the shelf like Fallen Angels. (laughs) A decision I would have been comfortable with, and Hellions, which may have been missing out. The jury is still out on that one. But the chance to read along and discuss, even a month behind the rest of many listeners and ahead of some, is a terrific incentive. Well, thank you so much for... For saying all that, and for uh, for sharing your experiences, uh, it really is the most fulfilling part of this uh, of this project that we're working on here. Just having this this great community to discuss and share our experiences and uh, talk about how we're how we came, how we went, and uh, how we're enjoying what we have today. Um, I love that there are things out there like Hoopla and Comicsology and Marvel Unlimited, even though you know. I don't do digital. I can't do digital because it's. I need. I need the the tactile sensation. That's part of the process for me. And uh, but I do understand that for many that is the best option, and for many that's the preferred option. So I love that it's there. I love that with things like Hoopla, you could you could follow along for free because some of these books free is the right price, like Fallen Angels, and maybe. Maybe X Factor. I don't know. We'll, we'll we'll see how that goes. The uh, jury is, you know, still out, I guess. But uh, to talk about some of your later stints in X fandom here, I'm on record of talk as talking about astonishing is not really rocking my socks. I even had the idea and actually drew up a logo to do an astonishing X lapsed program just to revisit the uh, early Whedon run just to. See if it's uh, see if it's something that I was just in a wrong time and place for. Like I said, I mean, we're talking about this issue of X Factor, which wasn't for me. And in the back of my mind, it's always going to be a situation where I'm wondering if it's just if I'm not seeing something because I'm never going to take my opinion as gospel. We've all got them, and uh, if I stack yours next to mine, yours will be taller than mine. So. I get a lot of uh, comments about how the Astonishing Run was, for many, what like the Claremont Run was for someone else, right? 
It may have been their first. It may have been their favorite. It may have been, you know, the seminal brick in their X-Men lore wall, right? And that's cool. That's cool. For me, I was just so hooked on the Morris and stuff that the Whedon stuff felt like a slap in the face. I do worry a little bit too much about how the sausage is made, which is not good. <laughs> Those are Chris problems. They are not the fault of a story. They are not the fault of a creator. They are not a fault of a fandom. It's all me. But I do feel like with... As um, passionate as fans of The Astonishing Run are, that maybe I do owe it uh, another view without without concerns about how they're going against something Morrison did or without worry about having to wait six months between issues because Joss Whedon you know, couldn't get his stuff together long enough to write an issue of the book that he wanted to be on. Especially when that book was kind of the straw that stirred the drink for the rest of the book, so all the rest of the books kind of had to tread water while he waited to do crap on Breakworld that nobody cared about. I should probably stop. Um, One of these days, we will take a look at Astonishing X-Men, whether it's on this program, whether it's on this channel or another channel. I do have some standing office to do some shows on other channels. Maybe we'll do some Astonishing X-Men somewhere. Maybe here, maybe there. We'll find out. But... It is something that I do want to do because I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm selling it short every time I talk about it, because I have just such a bad taste in my mouth about it. But on to Wolverine and the X Men post schism, boy, um, another one of those situations where I could not have been happier to have been wrong. Uh, schism to me, I hated Schism because uh, what it took from us. This is something I've talked about before. Another Chris problem, worrying about something that doesn't matter. I like legacy numbering. You know, it doesn't really hinder or help a story, but I like to feel like what I'm reading or what I'm a part of is actually part of a greater whole. You know, like, if I'm reading... Like, I was over the moon when when Action Comics and Detective Comics went back to the legacy numbering because right now I'm buying, you know... Action Comics number 1,028 and Or 1,030 Whatever the hell they're up to And if I go to a back issue bin And I find, you know, Action Comics number 410 That I need I'm still buying for the same volume It's like a living, breathing thing That I'm adding to, you know And it's a silly thing, but it's a collector thing And that is part of the fandom When they announced that Uncanny was going to be cancelled It seemed like they were doing so Basically to kick people like me in the nuts (laughs) And uh, It was fresh off the New 52 It was about uh, six months to a year after the New 52 Launched And Uncanny X-Men was the like Last legacy book standing Everything else had been rebooted A number of times Not Uncanny though Uncanny was the rock Uncanny was the only one left And then Tom Brevoort Like did some chuckle headed thing Where he's like hey we might reboot that one too And then Not a couple weeks later, we got the schism announcement. And we were promised, up, down, left, and right, that this was not a stunt. This was not just a way to zhuzh the sails a little bit. And unfortunately, it was exactly that. Um, We were told that there was going to be an organic and natural reason for this. And uh, you couldn't possibly 
do what they do the story they told in Uncanny X-Men Volume 2 number 1 that they would have told in Uncanny X-Men Volume 1 number 645 or whatever it would have been or 545 whatever the hell it was but they couldn't have told that story there it wouldn't have worked well yeah it could have especially when they canceled Volume 2 of Uncanny X-Men within like 20 issues so it's like yeah maybe it was a stunt that said I did not want to enjoy Wolverine and the X-Men because I'm I'm Cyclops guy and I wanted the Cyclops side to be better, but the Cyclops side was very, very dull. Um, what we got on the Wolverine and the X-Men side was an absolute bonkers blast. I don't know that I've ever had that much just f- straightforward fun with an X-Men book before. Jason Aaron just just slaughtered it, killed it. It was so much fun. Plus, it had one of my very, very, very favorite artists in the world on it, Chris Bocciolo. Just su- such a great book. Um, I remember it fondly. It's one of those that I wish I could invent a, like an extra day of the week to to devote to reading it again because uh, it was just a blast. I, I would totally understand if that was a book that brought you back and kept you for for a while here because it was it was just so much fun. But uh, with all that said, I, I definitely want to thank Evan for sharing his story with us here, and I invite everybody else to do so as well because. These are fun conversations. They might be a little bit repetitive to hear me wax on about the same stuff over and over again, but hopefully that won't stop you from sending in your own uh, your own stories, your own experiences, because I'm having a lot of fun learning more about all of you. But uh, with that said, we'll wrap it up here. And uh, if anybody would like to reach me for any reason, including sharing your story, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can hit me up at 90sxmen at gmail.com, or... WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com Google forgot they locked me out So I was able to get back in, change the password Good to go So WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com Or 90sXmen.com Wherever wherever you send your message, I'll find it Hopefully Uh, You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com We are about three weeks away From five years of daily content Over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com I don't really have any plans for any sort of celebration because I figure that I'm the only one that cares about it. So uh, we'll we'll put a pin in that and see what comes <laughs> what comes of age on January 31st of this year. Uh, you can also go to xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com for just the xlaps stuff. You can chat with us on Facebook at our little group, 90s X-Men. And you can listen to anything you want from the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Now that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, once again, apologies for the negativity regarding this issue. Uh, again, I'm not saying it was a bad issue. I'm just saying this issue wasn't for me. Um, if you agree or disagree, please feel free to let me know. I, I'm fine with any and all sort of uh, engagement. So you let me know <laughs> either way. But uh, I want to thank everyone so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 97 of x Labs. We are inching closer and closer to the triple digits here. I didn't think we'd ever get this far, but alas, here we are. And, I mean, we haven't hit 100 yet. I could get hit by lightning today, and it'll never happen, but we'll keep our fingers crossed that that does not happen. Today we're covering a book that, uh, well, when one mass crossover isn't enough... This issue's got the branding of two, and uh, that'd almost be embarrassing if I thought anyone other than me cared about such a thing. Uh, now, this issue is both part Empire and X of Tens here, so this is an Empire tie-in, as well as being on the path to X of Tens. It's funny, is uh, we talk about event fatigue, and fans and readers and comics enthusiasts were usually looked at by the pros as uh, imagining things like that, right? There aren't too many events out there. There aren't too many variant covers. Uh, we're not writing for the trade. That's all stuff that's in our feeble little heads. But, uh, I mean, this cover doesn't lie. There are two mass crossover brandings on it. Anyway, let's get right to it. This is X-Men Volume 5, Number 11. Had an October 2020 cover date. The story's called One War, One Mutant. Written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Lionel Francis Yu. Colors, Sonny Go. Letters, VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa White Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale August 26th of 2020. Now we open, and we're on the Arako end of Krakoa. Remember, the islands merged back in the long ago. Where former new X-Men, Loa, Anole, or... Anol, I don't know how you say his name, and Rockslide a peeping on that weirdo summoner, also from back in the long ago, X-Men Volume 5, Number 2. You remember him? Maybe not, because he wasn't all that memorable. But alas, he is here, and he's back. He notices the youngsters, and uh, he invites them over to play a game. Now, this game uses a tree stump and a pebble from the looks of it, and looks wildly fun. It's... A Rakoan in origin, and its name sort of kind of translates. It's a uh, it's an Arako word, but it doesn't have a straight translation, but as close as we can get would be the word trial or test. And the point of this game is to play against someone and find weaknesses. So like I said, this is like a barrel of laughs here. Who wouldn't want to play this game? Now, he offers one of the kids an opportunity to play. And Rockslide, assuming that he has no weaknesses, steps up to the plate, or stump, to play. He's handed the pebble, which crumbles into a Rockslide-shaped little avatar. I'm not sure if this is the summoner's doing, or Rockslide himself. I don't know. I don't remember what his powers were. Maybe he did this as an, in an attempt to impress the Arakoan weirdo? Don't know. Before the game can begin, however, Krakoa is descended upon by... Veg-type spacecraft. Now, I'm thinking that this uh, opening couple of pages here is probably the X of Tens portion of our issue, because everything from this point on is going to be strictly Empire. 
So I'm guessing this little weirdo summoner deal has to do with Exitems, which doesn't fill me with uh, a lot of optimism, but uh, we'll put a pin in that. Let's do our roll call here. We got Rockslide, Loa, Anol, and Summoner, who we will never see again this issue. Then Exodus, Magneto, Magic, Magma, and Iceman. Double page spread of creds, of course. Info pages. Two entire text pages. Sorry, no. Not doing it. Back to Krakoa, and we're a day later. Exodus is conducting his little catechism class with some younger mutants. He asks them if they're afraid of death and or dying. To which, I mean, they must be reading the same books we are because they're not, you know? Uh, One of them does have a Quentin Quire haircut, so he's probably well aware of how quick and easy it is to overcome death. I mean, you'd rather die than get a hangnail on Krakoa because death would, uh, you'd pass through death quicker. Now, Exodus prompts them to think on this harder. You know, dying ain't a big thing, but the cause of death is still there. It's still around. And so the children proclaim that, while they're not afraid of death, they are afraid of man and those like man. They ask why, hey, why haven't the mutants just put a stop to man? To which Exodus suggests that if they were to snuff out humanity, they'd be no better than they are. He asks the children to live their lives and to let the grown-ups worry about progress. He then goes on to share the story of what happened that day, which is to say when the veg-type spacecrafts came. Gotta say, I'm really enjoying this take on Exodus and his uh, his little his weird little uh, Sunday school gatherings. I'm I'm digging that, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about that toward the end of the episode. But really liking it. So. Exodus begins his story, and so we flash back to the arrival of those veg-types. As that's happening, Magic and Gorgon burst into Magneto's quarters, which interrupts his, uh, naked meditation time. Uh, They warn of incoming, and they explain that Captain Commander Cyclops is currently on the moon dealing with some of this present threat. Magic asks if Magneto's old ass is up for a fight. And he's all about it. He even, despite the cover showing us otherwise, he dresses in his old red and purples. I'm not sure if that's supposed to be symbolic. Maybe he doesn't get his hands dirty while wearing his old white gear. Dunno. I'd, uh, I'd probably have to research to verify, and, uh, I really don't feel like it at the moment. We'll just assume that there's some sort of ceremony to wearing this outfit. Anywho, from here, we actually enter our endgame. Yeah, really. We're already at the end of the issue, kinda. I mean, it's this scene is going to play us all the way through. Now, Magneto has the Stepford Cuckoos interface with several prominent mutants on and around Krakoa in order to triangulate a response to these veg-type invaders. And we do get a gag here, where Magneto calls a cuckoo by the wrong name, which admittedly was kind of funny, until they repeated the same exact gag exactly one panel later. Uh, I think I've made the assertion somewhere on these airwaves that, uh, like, the worst thing someone can do is laugh at a kid's joke. Because then, for the rest of the day, they keep telling, like, the same joke or variations on the same joke and expecting the same response. That's what this feels like. Like, Hickman had himself a chuckle at that line he wrote, and so he decided, hey, let's dip right back into that well again, because it was so funny the first time... It's just going to knock people's socks off the second time in as many panels. Not the case, unfortunately. Now, 
here is where we see everything that's going on. Like I said, Magneto is like uh, using the cuckoos to work with these mutants to triangulate some sort of a defensive measure against the veg types here. So we see that through Sage, they've taken control of several weather satellites up in orbit. We've got one cuckoo with Black Tom, who is Black Tomming, using Veg to fight Veg. Another cuckoo is with Iceman, who's readying for his call to action. And then finally, we have a cuckoo with Magma. And she's found, and she's put into telepathic communication with Magneto. Magneto then asks Magma if she has the ability to set off a Krakoan volcano. It's something that he had uh, assigned to her earlier, and he wanted to see if there was any progress on it. And she's all about it. Bada bing, the lava starts to flow. Iceman is then brought in to cool it all down to the point where it shatters. It becomes very brittle, shatters into shards. This gives Magneto like thousands of little metallic-tipped projectiles with which he, well, he skewers the veggies. He makes a, he makes a vegetarian shish kebab here because he is just skewering all of them. Now off to the side, we see the veg commander who's currently in the middle of Snapping Toad's neck, so we got a death. Magneto then confronts the big bad and offers him the opportunity to leave with his life. It's one of those, you know, if you pack up your crap and leave right now, we'll let you go peaceably. The veggie ain't keen on that, and he challenges Magneto to a fight. To which, we get two pages of Magneto repeatedly dropping those weather satellites directly onto the alien. It's really a very good scene, uh, both in writing and art. Uh, Lionel Yu, despite not always being my cup of tea, he absolutely kills it here, literally and figuratively, I suppose, with this uh, poor alien getting satellites dropped on his head. But uh, really, really good stuff. Um, The scene is nearly ruined by another attempt at comedy regarding how some of these satellites belong to the military. Which military? Whose military? Who knows? We wrap up with Exodus, who asks the children what their hero's name is, to which they all reply, Magneto. Exodus then asks what Magneto is, to which they all reply, Mutant. And that's that. Next episode, we're dipping back into Cable, with Cable number four already, which, hey, I'm happy about that. But, let's talk about what we learned here, and, uh, I gotta say it, this is how you do an Empire tie-in. This single issue really should have been the only time the X-Men crossed over into the event. You know, make this an extra-sized issue. Give us a few pages of Vulcan taking care of business on the moon to set it up like we had last issue. Leave out all the drowning their sorrows and and self-medicating, all that kind of angst. Get rid of it. Just have Vulcan doing his thing. Then have the the veg types come to Krakoa and have Magneto just... You know, hot knife through butter, these awful, boring, generic aliens. This was good. This was a really, really good issue. Surprisingly good. The fact that I enjoyed it is great, at least to me. But being an idiot who worries about things that don't matter, you know, uh, my mind keeps going back to something we talked about either when we talked about Empire X-Men number one or number two, and that was uh, the rules that Alan Moore wrote for... How to do a mass crossover And uh, not that any of it matters But it's something that pops into my mind From, you know, time to time And so I keep asking myself If overall, since thankfully This will be the final time we ever Ever touch on Empire Unless they announce a sequel Was this A successful mass crossover? Personally speaking 
No, no. Did reading this issue of X-Men, which I really, really enjoyed, I want to make sure that's clear, did this issue of X-Men make me want to go check out the main Empire series? Hell no. No. Hell no. In fact, when looking at our roll call page for this very issue, I was clued in on some Empire stuff I didn't know anything about. In that, uh, this, uh, threat has something to do with Commander Hulkling. Really now? No. No, no matter how hard Marvel tried, and I suppose continues to try, to shove these young Avenger characters down our throats, they're never not going to be horrendously dull to me. I wasn't a fan when they were introduced. I, I tried again during the, the Children's Crusade. I've, I've tried uh, during the Marvel Now relaunches or reboots, whatever the hell they were. Never did it for me. Never did it for me. They seemed like very, very try-hard characters that I just don't need in my reading rotation. So there's another reason why I will never read Empire. So outside of that, and the Empire branding overall, I gotta say this was a heck of an issue and a heck of a showcase for both Magneto as well as Exodus. I mean, let's be perfectly straight here. Magneto is just awesome here, right? He just kicks ass and, and takes names, as cliche as that sounds. He does it. He just really just... We see him as a master, you know... Strategist, strategist, however you say that, um, and he backs it up with his uh, with his powers. Really awesome scenes here. Possibly the best use of Magneto that we've seen so far in Dawn of X. And Exodus, with his little Sunday school circle, wonderfully creepy. And I, I have no idea what the end game with him is, but I can't wait to see it. Something I do want to say though is. Uh, I guess we can look at it in a couple of different ways here. In one way, it's as though he's indoctrinating these children, right? He's basically got them chanting, you know? He's, uh, he's passing on information and having them react to it. Kind of a slippery slope. And uh, current year, present day, however you want to say it, contemporarily, there's a lot of talk about institutionalized indoctrination in higher education these days, at least here in America. And while I hate to make blanket statements, there are elements of truth to those conversations. Again, not a blanket statement. But I am and have been a student for the past decade. I went back to I went back to college in 2011, so this is 10 years that I'm in school now. Uh, and I study what many refer to as a soft science in psychology, where in certain situations, a lot of the education is predicated on whatever the point of view of your professor is. Which is to say, there are educators out there who are more interested in passing on their own social and political views than anything else. Now, passing judgment, that's a very human thing to do, right? I'm, you know, I'm trying to give folks the benefit of the doubt here. But certainly there are agendas at play some of the time. Now, that's the real world, right? A professor trying to sway a student's worldview perhaps in hopes of getting them to register as a voter for a certain political party or become a donor to a certain social or political cause or a certain career cementing cause, maybe. But here on Krakoa, in the, in the even realer world, right, it's hard to view this as a one-to-one -one sort of thing because everything Exodus is saying, I mean... He's not trying to convince anyone of anything. All he's doing is speaking the truth. I mean, in the Marvel Universe, we know, and we've seen, and we've experienced 
that there are a lot of people who want mutants dead. That's legitimate. You know, there are no ifs, ands, or buts about that. What Exodus is telling these children isn't through a prism of trying to put together a narrative. It's basically what's happening, right? We know that in many situations here, might makes right, because it's sometimes the only defense that actually registers with the X-Men's aggressors. But here's the thing. I, I get the feeling, and, I, and it might just be me, but I feel as though we're supposed to view Exodus as a kind of zealot or an extremist via his, this presentation. You know, having these small group sessions with some young and malleable mutant minds, he's preaching to them and he's encouraging chants. You know, who is your hero? Magneto, Magneto. You know, he's having them really respond in a almost culty sort of way. And I get the impression that we're supposed to see him as being extreme and maybe going too far. But given the situation and everything going on around them in this fantastical world, he isn't doing anything more than giving them a recitation of actual events, right? If anything, it's dry commentary based on extraordinary events. It's weird. I like it. But it's weird. I'm, I'm not sure how we're supposed to be receiving these scenes. Are we supposed to be like, oh, is he, what? He's, he's really pushing an agenda here. Or do we actually pay attention to the words that he's saying? And it's like, well, this is actually what happened. You know, we've got kids who are no longer afraid of death, but he's trying to tell them that they have they have no reason to stop being afraid overall, which somebody should be telling the kids this. Right. Um I don't know, it's very weird. It's very interesting, though. I, I, I will hand this to Hickman. This was a wonderfully done uh, bit. And Exodus, I'd love to see more of them from this point on. This is great stuff. Now, we did have our opening scene here, which, if I had to assume, is our X of Tens moment of the issue, like I mentioned. Uh, I see that the Weirdo Summoner is on the cover of the next issue of X-Men, number 12 which I want to say is one of the part zeros of X of Tens, like the Prelude 2. I think it's X-Men 12 and Excalibur number 12. So yeah, I mean, that strange cold open that we got here probably had something to do with that. I'll withhold judgment, as we really don't get all that much. It's really just a reminder that, hey, that weirdo summoner is on the island somewhere. Fair play, right? Overall, great issue. Great issue, and if you ask me... This should have been the X-Books' only foray into Empire. It told us everything we needed to know, and it let the X-Men look like badass heroes for the first time in a while, without stupid crap like Explody Boy and the Scarlet Witch getting involved. So, really, really good issue. Uh, highly recommended. Um, we need more issues of X-Men that are like this. Uh, really, really good. Really good stuff. But with that out of the way... This is the final number 11 from the Wave 1 books. So let's do our power rankings here. Now, number 1 is a book that we had a little bit of discussion about over the past couple of episodes, and that is Marauders. I thought it was a very strong issue. Um, listener Jesse Dijon raised some very, very um, salient points about why the issue maybe didn't work quite as well as maybe I thought it did at first. But... It was still the strongest issue of these uh, number 11s, which I don't know if that says anything for the rest of the uh, line, but uh, 
I found myself coming away from that issue uh, most optimistic. Um, Now, number two would be this very issue of X-Men. And it was pretty close, which shocked me because I think... I think X-Men's been at the bottom of the list for the past few of these uh, power rankings here, but like I said, for the past however many minutes, very, very strong issue here of X-Men. Really enjoyed it. X-Force comes in third. New Mutants comes in fourth. It feels like we read New Mutants like a hundred days ago. Um, That one was the final part of the Carnelia event with, uh, boy, the Reality Warper, whose name I cannot remember. The one with the braces the hell's her name? I don't know. You know who I'm talking about if you know who I'm talking about. If not, pretty much everything I've said is probably nonsense anyway. The worst book of the number 11s was Excalibur, which is weird because I think Excalibur was the number one book of the number 10s, but number 11 was a weird one. Um, Another one of those Excalibur issues where it feels like we missed some stuff, right? Uh, it's one of those where you pick it up and you think you missed an issue or I forgot to review one or whatever, just discuss one. Cause I don't do reviews. Reviews are, are way above my ability. I don't have that kind of ability, but, uh, yes, Marauders was number one. X-Men was a close number two. X-Force was three. Four was New Mutants and rounding it out was Excalibur. If anybody would like to share their thoughts on their uh, power rankings for the number 11s, please feel free to uh, do so. Send me a message, send me an email. We'll go through all the contact stuff at the end of the show. Now, speaking of contact, let's dip into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's discussing Uncanny X-Men number 341 from 1997, part of the Merry X-Lapse series of shows. Damien says, I always thought I had loads of X-Men Christmas stories in my collection, but you seem to have found another one that I've never read. I left the X-Men immediately after Age of Apocalypse and definitely missed this one. It's a fun little story, but I don't think it's quite as good as the last one. In some ways, it's more Christmassy as it's thematically focused on family. And this is one that I missed out on the first, uh, my first go-round as well, because I stopped reading the books probably Four or five months after the Age of Apocalypse, I'd, uh, that, that's a story I've told a million times before, so I won't bore you again. So I didn't read this one until uh, picking it up in a, in a back issue bin. It's one that's definitely more in my wheelhouse than the uh, previous issue with Rockefeller Center, the uh, X-Men number 98, but I, I'll definitely concede that that one is a stronger issue overall. Uh, this one I like for... It's it's kind of the rose-colored glasses or the ruby quartz-colored glasses, I suppose, that I'm looking through to uh, to view it because this was just it pinged so many boxes for me. Uh, whereas the one that we read earlier, X Men '98, feels more like a piece of history than an actual story at times because I think just the reverence that I have personally for those early Claremont issues. Um, it almost feels more than a story, which, I mean, is silly, but uh, it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird demarcation and, a, and a, where I put it as opposed to just a regular story. It's, it's weird Chris stuff. Probably best not to worry about it. Damien continues, I've previously stated that I always found Rogue and Gambit to be a weird couple. It felt like Rogue's personality was completely altered when she was paired with Gambit. You would think I would like I would be glad to see her paired with Joseph, but I found that equally uncomfortable, mainly because of the age difference between Rogue and Magneto. 
I know Joseph was eventually revealed not to be Magneto, but he was intended to be him when this was written. In Claremont's later issues, Rogue is referred to as a teenager, and Magneto is revealed to have been 15 in 1940. At the very least, Magneto is 45 years older than Rogue. And yeah, um, it's funny, because it's one of those things where you feel like it might have been born out of the marketing wing of Marvel more than anything. Uh, Especially, I mean, this is 1997, uh, so the mid-90s, All we hear is about the editorial interference and how marketing would get involved and they would make stories go longer than maybe they should. You know, Clone Saga, you know, stuff like that. And part of me wonders, and part of me wondered when, uh, when, when, not Gambit, when Joseph first appeared, if we were dealing with the Age of Apocalypse Magneto, who, while, you know, still the same age as our Magneto, was portrayed as being so much younger. Uh, a lot less stodgy, I guess, and more of a contemporary to characters like Rogue and Gambit. I wonder if that was the idea behind Joseph, even down to like the extremely long hair, and felt very much like they were trying to recapture the Rogue and Magneto marriage from the Age of Apocalypse here, and even going as far as to have Magneto, or Joseph, and Rogue being able to kiss on top of the Twin Towers, uh, even though it was through all uh, you know, a device doohickey sort of deal. It made me think, and even now reading it, it's like, I wonder if that's what they were going for. I wonder if if marketing saw, you know, the AOA characters and were just like, let's put those two together. And it's like, well, that won't work here. Well, figure out a way. <laughs> and uh, this is the best they could do. But the reveal um, during, I think it was during the Magneto War, or the Magneto Wars, I don't remember which one it was, the reveal was, well, I, wasn't, I won't say kind of a letdown, it was a complete letdown, because we had a lot of theories. This was one of those Usenet deals, right? We thought Joseph might be the AOA Magneto. We also thought that Joseph might be Rogue and <laughs> Magneto's son from the Age of Apocalypse, which would be very, very gross. Uh, because of his attraction to his uh, mother from a different dimension. But there were a lot of theories, and uh, that was part of the fun. And when it was ultimately revealed, and I, I, I guess I shouldn't feel weird about spoiling something A, so old, and B, that nobody cares about, they made, they made it very clear, because everybody's mind went to, oh, it's going to be a clone. He's going to be a clone of Magneto. And we were told, no. No, Joseph is not a clone of Magneto. He's a copy of Magneto. And we were supposed to try to figure out what the difference between a clone and a copy was. We were were assured that there was a difference. I couldn't tell you what that difference is, but uh, that was the uh, the running gag for a little while. It's like, no, 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 he's not a clone. He's a copy. But uh, thank you so much for for sharing your thoughts on that issue there, Damien, uh, and for checking out all of the Merry X lapsed fun. It really, really means a lot to me. Uh, next, Andrew Franklin is going to give some thoughts on Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed, which is the Sunday special we've had for the past month or so, taking a look at Phoenix Resurrection, the return of Jean Grey from a legacy-era Marvel. And he says, Well, that certainly was an ending to a story. I thought the first four-fifths of Phoenix Resurrection was fine. The surreal nature of the diner and what was happening with Jean, while not breaking new ground, did have me wanting to know how it would wrap up. It's hard to pull off a story where the how it happens is interesting when the audience already knows the outcome. 
The conclusion really ruined it, though. Did that need five issues? That story could have been told in a 48-page special. Like you said, in hindsight, it makes sense that this is badly remembered. Typical Marvel padding out so they can get your $25 and a nice price trade collecting it all. Yeah. Yeah, uh, truer words, right? Um, this... I... It's... It's one of those um, where... I went into it with such low expectations Because I I didn't know Matthew Rosenberg I never read anything of his Um, And in my head I had it that where And I mean this isn't fair to anybody Who was uh, toiling on the X-Books But in my head I had it to where Marvel was putting lesser creators Or less experienced creators on the X-Books As a tryout Because they cared so little About whether or not the X-Books were successful 100% 100% projection, right? Just where my mind goes I'm a, I'm a cynic and an idiot So I didn't know what to expect I wasn't expecting much And I want to say The only, you know Post-Phoenix Resurrection Pre-Hoxpox gene that I read was In an X-Men Red Annual Where she I, I don't know if is it her or Nightcrawler Who refers to a hot dog as like like meat byproducts and hate or something like that. It was so bad, so bad. But uh, I wasn't expecting much, is what I'm trying to say. So the first three issues just knocked my socks off. They were really, really good. Built a wonderful mystery. Fourth issue a little wobbly. Fifth issue, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a it was a conversation with a bird. That was it. Gene told the bird to go away, and the bird said, "All right," and the bird left, and Gene was alive again. Really uh, let down But like Andrew said here It's like uh, How are you going to wrap it up <laughs> In a, in a uh, satisfying sort of way And and you're 100% right This could have been told In a oversized special For sure This didn't need What would we say About 100 pages We'll say uh, charitably 100 pages We didn't need 100 pages for this story uh, over, f- over the course of uh, 5 weeks Thankfully this was a weekly um, because I couldn't imagine waiting for this month to month And then after five months getting that as our resolution here It's kind of a no-win situation for the creative team, unfortunately Because it's, you gotta get there, but how do you get there? And you do the best you can, I guess And when you're told, as I'm sure they are, that you're filling five issues Well, I guess you gotta just do what you do Andrew continues On a side note, I'm so sick of the Phoenix Force. Few things make me as uninterested as its inclusion in a story. I see on the internet that Marvel's next or current or their tenth simultaneous crossover event has to do with the Phoenix Force empowering various Marvel heroes and that, quote, things will never be the same. Disgusted sigh. Yeah, yes. Um, I'm very, very embarrassed right now because... The other day, I went to the comic shop to buy Deadpool Volume 8, Number 6, because it does tie into, or it's an unofficial tie-in to our Dawn of X books. And while I was there at the shop, I looked over on the new release shelf, and Avengers Number 40 was there. Avengers Volume, I don't know, 600, Number 40. And it said on the cover, Enter the Phoenix. And I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, are they doing like a variant cover month with the Phoenix? No. 
No, no, this is, as Andrew said, a Phoenix Force story happening in Avengers. And I bought the first issue of it because I'm an idiot. And, yeah, not my favorite. Um, (laughs) It's funny, you know, I complain a lot on this show about our roll call and double page spread of creds, you know. Avengers doesn't have that, and it needs it. Because I could barely tell you any of the characters in this book. It is just such a different book than where I left it. I can't even remember when I left Avengers books. Before Secret Wars, probably. But I I didn't recognize half the team, and it was just a real disaster. But, uh, yeah, I bought it. I'm not going to buy the second part. But, uh, yeah, I did buy it, because... I thought, hey, maybe this is something we could talk about on the show. Hey, maybe this will tie in with something. And I, I don't want to be at a that big a disadvantage when, like, in the next month's previews, it's like, oh, it's going to be Marauders, Enter the Phoenix, Part 1 of 6. It's like, oh, I probably should know what's going on. But, yeah, not going to do it. Not going to do it. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, anyway, I've really enjoyed these Sunday specials, and I'm looking forward to whatever comes next. Thank you so much, and uh, so am I, even though I'm not sure what's coming next. And uh, I'm recording this on Wednesday. I think it's Wednesday. So, uh, yeah, I don't have much time to think about it and to to create cover art, but we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll see what it is. But uh, thank you so much. And we're going to wrap up with a letter from uh, our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG, and it's a Merry Christmas missive. Um, which was the reason I'm getting to this one so late is because it was in the other email that I got locked out of, so had to have him send it to the other one. So I apologize for you know reading a Christmas message here on well, if this goes out on time, January seventh. So we'll pretend we're in a country that celebrates Christmas in the middle of January. Now Mark says, Merry Christmas, Chris. I hope you and your family had a wonderful Christmas. I had a couple of days off and I'm finally caught up on every episode. I know I make that sound like a chore, but it's the opposite. This last two weeks have been so busy and weird that the only mental getaway I had was podcasts. So I wanted to check in and tell you that I've been enjoying every episode. I know I haven't had the chance to chime in on every one, but I'm listening. Well, thank you so much, because uh, I know it gets crazy, and uh, we all get busy. Life happens is is something that uh, we all all say. Um, So it really means a lot to me that you'd... uh, that you check in when you do, and that you and that you listen. It really, really means a lot to me. Mark continues. Also, you still have me working hard on the soundtrack of my life that I've had a couple of long nights working hard. Keep up the great work, Chris. And I say this a lot, but I really do mean it. This has been a year full of awful, and the only things keeping me sane are family, friends, and podcasts, which, truth be told, are the same. Thank you. That really, really means a lot, Mark. I'm so happy that you're following along here. And I hope you and yours had a wonderful holiday, a wonderful Christmas as well. A safe New Year and all that good stuff. And here is to, uh, here's to better days, right? Let's, uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. Let's try, let's try not to, not to bump or break anything. We'll, we'll just, we'll be nice and qu- we'll be as quiet as baby mice and hope for the best. So thank you so much. Thank you to everybody. And uh, if anybody would like to reach out, you could do so a couple of different ways, of course. You can find me on the Twitter machine at Ace Comics or at 90sxmen at gmail.com or weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com because, hey, I got back in. 
Um, you can check out blog posts and show notes. Almost five years worth of blog posts every single day over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We've also got the Xlapsed page, just xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, which is a mouthful, but eh. Um, you could talk to us on Facebook about whatever the hell you want over at 90s X-Men and... You can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that's where we'll leave it for today. So psyched that we had such a good issue of, uh, of old Volume 5 here. It's, I was not expecting it, so very, very happy that we uh, had a good one here and that uh, it gave us so much to talk about, gave us uh, some good stuff to chat about. So want to thank you all for hanging out with me today and sharing your time and uh, as always i will talk to you again real soon see ya How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 84 of X-Lapse, where, well, the grift rolls on here. We're going to continue our way through the second half of Empire colon X-Men, and this is Empire colon X-Men number three. It's had an October 2020 cover date. The story's called Staff Infection. And once again, we get a whole new slew of writers. This is Vita Ayala, or Vita Ayala, I'm not sure which, uh, Zeb Wells and Ed Brisson. Art, Andrea Bricardo. Colors, Nolan Wooded. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. The head of X is Hickman. Edits, Beast, so white, Sobolski. Cover price, five friggin' dollars. And this went on sale August 12th of 2020. Now we kick things off with our roll call. Today we're going to be focusing on Magic, Penance, Angel, Multiple Man, Black Tom Cassidy, The Stepford Cuckoos, Beast, Nightcrawler, Opal, Edith, Augusta, Lily, and Explody Boy. Then we get two pages of people taking credit for this. Okay, so into comics, and we're, of course, still on Genosha. And our zombies are still stirring. Now, they won't shut up about brains. Real original, right? Uh, Now, it's not 100% clear to me here, but I think we've even got some veg-type zombies in the mix now. 
whatever the case, they're all headed to that big bulb, you know, that big membrane that uh, even the Soul Sword couldn't cut through last issue. Uh, it looks as though the veg types are actually being granted access through, though, I think. Anyway, back to our heroes. Now, the mutant psychics, who now include Danny Moonstar, Karma, and some blonde character, who I think is supposed to be Maxime or Manon, but, I mean, really, they just look like Kamandi here? I don't know. They're watching a fleet of Jamie Madroxes fighting off the meat-type zombie horde. Now, Magic, she warps she and Opal away, and we'll catch up with them in just a little bit. Quentin Quire then takes point, telling the mutant psychics it's time to mount up to which they somehow wrap themselves in a tree-like armor coating and leap into action. And this is the first of a few unwarranted and fillery full-page spreads. I mean, as if this story didn't already feel stretched out to the point where it would need, like, collagen injections before, right? Anyway, Magic and Opal. They zip over to Beast Lab on Krakoa, and this is a decent little scene. Now, they're here in hopes that they can concoct some of that black oak in order to destroy the bulb. And I'm going to come clean here. I thought that's what they did last issue, but I suppose I was mistaken. I guess it was just Teeny Tiny Tom's attempt to communicate with Krakoa that caused the bulb to get all wonky and spit Jamie Madrox out. Fair enough. My bad. So I do want to give this issue some credit here, because I said I like this scene, because this might actually be the best portrayal of Beast that we've seen since Hoxpox, and even before that. He's not brooding, he's not snarky, he's not borderline evil, he's not philosophizing with semester one freshman ethics sort of stuff. He's doing beast things, just doing beast things, and it's pretty funny. Uh, we jump back to Genosha, where Madrox has somehow managed to rescue Monet, while uh, down below in the fracas, the zombies are overwhelming a gaggle of Jamie dupes. Jamie Prime, and I think it's Horticulture Lily, they're then approached by Explody Boy, who makes them an offer that... Well, they don't even really get the opportunity to think long enough about in order to refuse. Now, E.B. says he'll help out so long as he can keep all the resulting meat to eat. Jamie's just kind of dumbfounded, and then E.B. goes kaboom. Back to Krakoa, Beast and Opal are listening to some classical music and working on their Black Oak gimmick, and it doesn't take them all that long to get to, get to the bottom of it. And I'm telling you, this is some of the best Beast we've seen in years... It's sad that it's like just a short side visit here, as this is the last we'll see of them. Anyway, they have their Black Oak Serum, and they load up a bunch of Super Soakers with it. They then give them to Black Tom, who, as always, is Black Tomming. He claims that his teeny tiny Tom avatar has been busted, and so he's out of tricks. Thankfully, we do have another teleporter here, and his name is Nightcrawler. Kurt grabs the Super Soakers and bamfs all the way to Genosha, in another unwarranted full-page spread. So, okay, we're back on Genosha, and it's the zombie versus mutant battle. It continues to rage on. Uh, one of the cuckoos is very nearly overwhelmed by, like, a whole bunch of undeads, but Magic is able to step in before anything actually happens, and, you know, it's like, yeah, they're really going to actually kill somebody in this pointless cash-in? I never see any editorial footnotes directing us to read this. Um, I mean, Empire X-Men isn't even worth resorting to the Resurrection Protocols. Uh, Magic actually says that using the protocols is expensive. So, uh, I think uh, they must blow their monthly budget every time an issue of X-Force drops, because uh, bodies hit the floor in that book. Anywho, the cuckoo suggests, hey, how about we stop fighting wave after wave after wave of these things and maybe try to find out where they're coming from? 
Magic is all, Durr, why didn't I think of that? To which, yeah, why didn't you think of that? You're the Krakoan war captain. Shouldn't you have had that in, your, in the back of your head somewhere? Whatever the case. Back to Nightcrawler, who's squirting the big bulb with his super soakers, and it actually begins to work. It's wearing holes in the formerly unbreakable membrane. Unfortunately, the meat-type zombies are using these holes to enter because they uh, appear to sense fresh meat inside. Back to Magic and the Cuckoo, they're porting around looking for the zombie origin point, and after a dozen or so ports, they happen across a very odd rod, of which Magic is overwhelmed with his beauty. It gives the Cuckoo a nosebleed, but not in the anime way. Now, Magic grabs the staff and... winds up transformed into some sort of demon? Uh, okay... Uh, The Cuckoo sends out a psychic SOS to inform the rest that, uh, well, they got problems. Back to Madrox. He, Monet, Lily, and Sophia Petrillo, or is that Phil Rizzuto? I don't know. They regain their bearings following Explodey Boy's explosion. And as the dust settles, Jamie sees a bunch of meat-type zombies chowing down on himself, like his dupes. This scene is being played for laughs, and... I think it sucks. I don't care for it one bit. I mean, I come from a time where if Jamie lost a single dupe, it affected him deeply. And here, dozens are just being eaten by zombies, and I think we're supposed to find it funny. Come on, folks, you're better than this. This is this is some low-hanging crap here. This is garbage. Now, what's more, in order to clear a path for their escape, Jamie starts just chucking random dupe body parts to distract the zombies. This isn't cool. I mean, is this the sort of garbage that they put in those Marvel Zombies books? Because get that crap out of here. Keep it over in those low-effort books and maybe try a little harder here. Now let's work our way toward the ending here. Angel. Remember him? Okay, well, he starts to come out of his hormonal days and uh, realizes that the women that he was just fawning over are, well, ancient. Magic as a demon has some very, very Hickman-esque dialogue, talking about chaos godheads and whatnot. Uh, She then proclaims herself to be the zombie queen of New Genosha. Then, Warren and Jamie start power puking. Not just because they're in this horrible story, but as a side effect of the pheromone wearing off. They all then head inside the big bulb. Here, they find a bunch of meat and veg-type zombies dining on a giant brain. We learn that this is a kotati knot, comprised of, I don't know, a bunch of katati stuff. One Katati head tells our heroes that the broadleaf lord is infected, whatever the hell that means. Just then, the brain bursts, and from it emerges a giant plant zombie big-brained thing that says, Glore, glore, glore. And we're out of here. Next episode, we wrap this up. Unfortunately, over the course of the next little while, we will be revisiting Empire at least twice in the pages of X-Men Volume 5. But we'll worry about that when we get there. Let's talk about this. And let's start with the good. Let's start with the good, because there was good here. I thought this was a great portrayal of Beast. (laughs) Unfortunately, that only filled two pages of this issue. Uh, The rest of the issue? Well, it it sure happened to us, didn't it? Um, You know, it might be damning with faint praise to say that this could have been good. But it could have. It could have been a decent story. If, back in issue one, the mutant zombies managed to make their way through the gateway to Krakoa, I feel like that could have been a lot more fun. Relatively speaking, anyway. I think that would have made it feel like far less of a cash-in, nothing-happening, a completionist-exploiting miniseries. Again, relatively speaking, of course. 
And who knows, maybe that was the original plan and the COVID hiatus caused them to shift gears? Probably not. Um, I'm looking at the cover of this issue, right? And of course, covers are fairly meaningless, considering that even the most random of issues comes with a dozen or so variants. Um, I'm looking at it here, and it looks like whoever drew it didn't actually know much about what was going to actually be going on in it. Um, We had a similar issue during X-Men Plus Fantastic Four... Not that that's an excuse. I mean, I don't need to remind any of you that we've got a whole fleet of editors who are supposed to be editing and helping to guide these things, right? But if we stop and we look at the cover, the most prominent character on it is Cyclops. How do you like them Cyclops scenes? What's more, he's flanked by Colossus, Polaris, and Magneto. Those those characters have pretty good scenes in here, right? No, we didn't see any of them. What we also didn't see was the Shadow King, who I made perhaps too big a deal out of last episode. Maybe they realized that he, you know, just shouldn't be jammed in the background of a cluttered panel? Who knows? Um, While I'm griping, let's go to my biggest gripe. And no, I'm not talking about the low-effort zombie brain stuff. But I'm really annoyed at seeing Jamie Madrox's dupes being eaten by those low-effort zombies. And the whole scene being treated as a funny ha-ha. I remember stories and scenes in the old, you know, the first run of Peter David X-Factor back in the long ago where when Jamie was unable to reabsorb a dead or a dying dupe, that just got into his head to, so, to the point where he was like a basket case. Which, I mean, stands to reason, doesn't it? Here, though, it's just like, well, that sucks, zombies are eating me. It, it's really, really so dumb. And I'd like to think that our Hox, Pox, Doc, Sox brain trust are a little bit better than this. So please, prove me right, because this ain't good. Uh, But I'll tell you what, the beast scene was pretty damn good. Give me more of that beast, please. Whoever was responsible for writing those two pages, I want you, you you know, ferrying beast back to uh, prominence and decency. Um, Decompression, let's talk about that. The uh, seams of decompression are really showing here. Uh, Panels were sparse, as in there weren't very many per page. And then we'd get these unnecessary full-page spreads that really were not warranted. You probably don't need me to tell you that uh, it feels like they padded this out just a little bit to get the four issues. It's just unfortunate that they only had enough story for, like, a regular-sized one-shot that they'd still charge $5 for. Um, I don't think I could recommend this any less, though. Though, I am still open to the possibility that I am completely wrong and that our fourth issue will make me see the error of my ways. Oh, the things we tell ourselves, right? But uh, that is all I have to say about Empire colon X-Men number three. Let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien. He's talking about New Mutants number 11. He says, I feel like the three-part Carnelia story would have worked better as a two-parter, followed by a so-called Lobdell quiet issue. It seems odd pacing choice to drag an extra cliffhanger out of the story when it could be so quickly resolved. And yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, This felt totally tacked on. Um, There was really no reason as to why this needed to be padded, just so the main conflict could be wrapped up in the opening three pages of issue 11 here. Um, And I agree. A Lobdell Quiet issue would have worked really well here. I I feel like it would give the kids an opportunity to decompress a little bit, because... Whether the arcs have been exciting or not, we can't deny the fact that there have been arcs here. You know, we had the space arc, we had the farm arc, we had the Nova Roma bit, now we have the Carnelia bit. That's a lot of stuff going down. 
And it would be nice to let the kids decompress while still dealing with all the fallout. You know, I mentioned not wanting to see Armor cope with, you know, seeing her family in the ink balloon, but that would have fit in a quiet issue, just a breather issue, just giving us a little chance to catch our breaths before we move into the next phase of things. Damien continues. Having said that, I love this issue because most of the focus was on quiet character moments. Obviously, I still hate how Boom Boom is portrayed, but all the other characters felt right. Danny's moral certainty is a large part of the narrative backdrop to the Claremont run on New Mutants, and I hope her being against mind manipulation leads to her rebelling against Xavier. And I hope so, too. I really hope we start seeing little bits of doubt being sprinkled throughout the books. I mean, we've seen a little bit of it, but I'd like to see that sort of bubble to the forefront a little bit. And I mean, you guys know me. As much as I hate the contrived hero-versus-hero story, and I feel like they are beyond played out at this point, I feel like if they're done right, this could actually be one worth reading. I mean, at this point, it kind of writes itself, doesn't it? I mean, we've been doing our uh, our own headcanon here since, I mean, since the start, uh, and definitely since the Crucible. So it's, uh, I feel like this one would write itself. I feel like maybe they're going to be saving that for the third and final act of Hox, Pox, Docs, Socks, Tox. Is the post-X of Ten's era being called Twilight of X? I could have sworn I read that somewhere. Maybe Marvel previews, or maybe it's Dusk of X. I don't know. I know it's something of X, but I couldn't tell you exactly what. Uh, Damien continues. I continue to like the idea of Glob Herman as the homemaker of the Sextant. He's one of those characters who I've really warmed to over the years, but he isn't very good as a superhero, so it's nice to see a role that keeps him in the book. And that's true. Uh, I mean, there really isn't a whole lot that a walking sack of whatever Glob's comprised of, uh, you know, on the battlefield, right? I want to say that he served a similar role to this in what little uh, I read of Age of X-Men. I know he very, at the very least had a chicken coop there. So I think he, uh, I, I don't remember much of his backstory. Is he, you know, a farm boy? Maybe. But uh, I know he had uh, a chicken coop there. He's got a chicken coop here. So I think that's pretty neat as well. Damien wraps up with, You seem really keen on seeing a resolution to the Docs plot. And Docs is in the mutant-hating website magazine thing. I'm quite fearful about it, as I think it's a potential minefield. We've seen a tendency toward the lowest common denominator with villains, and I imagine some very unsubtle depiction of a reactionary internet troll. (sighs) You know what? I didn't even think of that. (laughs) You very well might be, and probably are right. Uh, This might be some wildly unsubtle stuff heading our way. Um, I really don't have a lot of faith in Marvel's portrayal of undesirables these days. I mean, they kind of wear their biases on their sleeve. So yes, this might wind up being a toughie. I suppose it's a good thing that it looks like it'll be a one-and-done, because right after that issue, we jump into Exitens. We do have some time before we get to that episode, uh, because I actually just updated the next couple dozen um, episode art things, you know, like what I put up when, what I put up as the album art for each episode, and uh, just to get us up to like episode 100, and the next issue of New Mutants, New Mutants 12, is going to actually be episode 99, so we have a little while before we find out just how subtle or unsubtle the Doc's plot might be. So thank you so much for writing in your thoughts on New Mutants number 11, Damien. Thank you. Thank you. Next, Andrew Franklin is talking about Empire and Hellions number two. He says, 
I don't like modern Marvel comics. Hell, I don't like most modern comics. I don't care about the wider Marvel universe, so to me, Empire is an inconsequential thing that we'll have to grit our teeth and endure. I hope that the part of the crossover you're detailing becomes good, but after the first issue, I'm not holding my breath. I really hope that the other space crossover Marvel is doing about the symbiote space god, (laughs) insert loud disdainful groan here, doesn't have any X-Book crossover. I am crossover-averse, so even X of Tens is something I'm not really looking forward to. If a part 4 of 6 reads poorly as a single issue, what's a part 13 of 22 gonna read like? I'm keeping an open mind about it, though, because I know a character, I know two characters I like show up, and some listeners here have said good things about it. Now, from what I can tell, our symbiote space god story, um, there will be some King in Black tie-ins to our X-Men books. So far, I have seen that the X-Men are actually on the cover of King in Black number four, one of the probably seven trillion covers, so might not mean anything. Uh, there are a couple of issues of the upcoming Sword series that are King in Black branded, and Marauders either gets a one-shot or a miniseries tied in with King in Black. Um, I can't say that I'm looking forward to any of that, <laughs> especially in light of what we've gotten with this Empire cash-in, right? It's just another way to pull another another $5 bill out of our pockets, right? But uh, we'll see. We'll see when we get there. I mean, at this point, it's going to be a long time till we get there. So we'll worry about that as we get closer. And as for Exitens, can't lie. I'm also a bit nervous about how I'm going to receive it. Uh, not that I can't deal with some duller chapters of a mass crossover event. I mean, this ain't my first rodeo. But as you said, 22 parts is a lot to devote to a single story, isn't it? I mean, at this point, if we include all the Path 2s and the Prelude 2 X of 10s bunch, we're going to be talking about that story for like a month and a half on this show. That's a long time. And uh, (laughs) if I wind up not liking the story, that's going to be a very, very tough month worth of episodes uh, because I am too obsessed and or stupid to just pull the plug. So we'll we'll power through (laughs) and probably do a grand disservice to a story that many, many people enjoy or seem to enjoy. But we'll worry about that when we get there. Andrew continues, I would be interested to know how many listeners read more Marvel titles than just the X-Men and if they're reading the whole Marvel Empire experience, how they're enjoying it. That's an excellent question. So if anyone out there would like to share their non-X Marvel pull list and, and, you know, let us know, please please do. Because uh, I still do have questions. Like, if you're reading everything, uh, was this Empire X-Men miniseries worth it? Did it help add any flavor to the experience? Did it do anything for you? I'd like to know. And I guess as we get closer to, you know, uh, King in Black... We'll probably be asking some of those same questions then as well. Andrew continues, On a more positive note, I enjoyed Hellions number 2, maybe more than the first issue, if only because it was more than just getting the team together. I really like that Grey Crow kept his promise to Empath and killed him right away. Really tells the audience a lot about his character. I also like how Havoc reacted, telling Psylocke that he's probably not the right fit for a team where the members are just executing each other like it's no big deal. Which probably means before this arc is done, Alex will do something to show us he does belong here. I like the whole short conversation between Alex and Psylocke, where he tells her that he's fine, and she tells him that she's a psychic and knows that he's not. 
It feels like a very Alex thing to do, putting up a front like that even as the reader sees a little glimpse that he's seeing an image of himself as the Goblin Prince and quietly freaking out. Alex has always wanted to be normal and fit in while constantly aware of the huge shadow his brother casts. As a fan of the character, I thought he was being handled well. More on that in a moment, though. And I agree. I agree. Havoc is being handled well here. Um, I still think I might have a problem with him being stuck on this team simply because... And I talked about this during our Hellions number 1 discussion, but... The Quiet Council really should have given him the benefit of the doubt, unless, of course, there is some sort of ulterior motive to having him on this team. You know, is he there to watch them? Is he a mole for Xavier? Is he in cahoots with the Quiet Council in some sort of way? I don't know. I really don't know. And uh, I think that is my main sticking point with Havoc being on the team, despite the fact that I'm a big fan of the character and I always like uh, seeing him try to deal with um, wanting to be you know, mundane. Wanting to be mundane, but knowing that he's not. Uh, we've seen him leave the team time and again to try to live a normal life, sometimes with Polaris, sometimes not. So it's, uh, it is cool seeing that dissonance continue to play out here. Andrew continues, the rest of the issue I enjoyed. I thought the info page on Sinister's Marauders was good. So far, Hellions is using that gimmick well. The art as a whole was good, and the zombie Marauders were appropriately creepy. The fight scene that takes up the last half of the issue is clear and easy to follow, and the coloring is good too, especially when Havoc uses his powers. It's nice bright blue-white. So while I, so kind of a short read, like most modern comics, I enjoyed this more than I thought I would. I'm curious to see where this story goes, with some trepidation. I too thought the uh, info page was pretty good here on the Marauders, simply because... I mean, if you're if you're just coming into this run, you don't know who any of these characters are. Uh, and I mean, it doesn't really tell you exactly who's who, but at least it gives you some sort of information, some sort of name that you could you know Google if you wanted to. I thought that was nice as a sort of secondary roll call page, so we knew exactly what the battlefield actually looked like. And uh, I mean, the info pages I've been, you know, sometimes they've been rotten. Sometimes they've been pretty decent, and sometimes they're really good. And this one was a good one uh, simply because it. Delivered information, which, you know, go figure is what an info page probably should do. And it, you know, back in the day, I feel like it would have been the Claremontian way to do it, would have all of them stand there and introduce themselves, right? It's like, I'm Harpoon, and, you know, I'm Arclight. That seemed to be the old Claremont way of doing it, but it was a different time, so it was, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of a charm to that. But nowadays, I don't know that we can get away with that sort of thing. And so, Hey, we got these info pages. We might as well use them for uh, for the reason they should be used for, which is to deliver information. <laughs> now, Andrew continues. Now, my gripes. I want to talk about the attempts at humor in this book. He says, now you talk a lot about Chris problems, and I'm going to say that this might just be an Andrew problem. The bit with Nanny stuck on the floor. I know it made you laugh, so I can't say it wasn't funny, and I'm sure most people really enjoyed it. But to me, the Andrew problem is that all I could think when I see this is, oh, you just put Nanny in the book to laugh at her. And I find that incredibly disrespectful and a waste of a character. Take that gag out, and what changes about the story? Nothing. I get that Nanny is goofy and kind of silly, but her strength as a character is that she's goofy and silly while killing people and stealing their children. Nanny should be played creepy as hell, not for cheap slapstick. It bugs the hell out of me when an author picks a character and decides they're dumb and just craps all over them for a laugh. And yes, this is 100% an Andrew problem, but it's something that colors my reading, whether I like it to or not. That's a really good point. 
that's a really good point. And uh, like I said during the discussion, I, I kind of hate myself for finding Nanny so funny in this book. <laughs> it's not my kind of comedy, but for whatever reason, it just gets me every time. Like, even the first issue when Sinister reacted to Nanny, seeing Nanny just a, an egg with lipstick on it and just freaked out. I, I don't know why that caught me so off guard, but it did. And Nanny kind of like writhing around like R2-D2 got me. It got me, but despite the fact that she is a horrifying character, and uh, you're you're 100 percent right. Which, I mean, I can relate to that in so many ways. I'm talking about my my problem with Jamie Madrox being eaten by zombies here, because the writer decided that it's going to be funny. You know, I I have problems with that too. So it's uh, maybe a Chris and Andrew problem. I just for some reason I've got a weakness for uh, for our nanny. <laughs> Is all. Uh, Andrew continues. That feeling also includes includes Batroc the Leaper, who doesn't deserve to be a joke. There, I said it. And I'm with you. I'm with you there, too. The reason I have such a knee-jerk reaction to Batroc is because, just like what you said here, he's mostly used as a low-effort comedy act. It's like, it's like the worst, like, distilled Wizard Magazine article. It's like, they might as well have Batroc carry a sign over his head that says... Laugh at this character, damn it, with an arrow pointing down or something, because that's all he's used for. I feel like Batroc and maybe Modoc can hang out together because Modoc is just a creepy head. Isn't he funny? Ha ha ha. No, there's more to it than that. You know, it's. Eh, you know. <laughs> Andrew continues. My other gripe isn't so much a gripe as a trepidation about where the story's going. I really don't want Alex to be portrayed as lovesick over Madeline. I don't want to read him trying to reach the good inside her only for her to redeem to deem herself too broken to be good and him agonizing over killing her to save his team. That's pretty much a stock havoc story and I really hope that's not exactly what happens. And you know, I haven't really given much thought to what might happen. I'm afraid you might be right on the money though cuz I don't see her making it out of this uh of this uh story alive. I don't know what the resurrection protocols might have in store for her since she's I guess she's technically a mutant, but she's also a clone. I don't know if... I don't know if we've had one of those die yet. <laughs> so, maybe they'll bring her back, maybe they won't. Maybe she'll just uh, stay dead. I, I have a feeling, though, that she is probably not going to make it out of this story because I think that this first arc is the statement arc, you know, where they kind of lay down what, what to expect from this volume and this series. So I think it's going to be... Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, That's all I've got to say, so I'll end by saying that I continue to enjoy the show. And don't feel too bad when you're negative on a book because you're far more positive, so it evens out. Until Krakoa and Paradise Island do the island mating ritual, make mine ex-lapsed. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there, Andrew. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get over myself as it pertains to, uh, being negative on a book because as a fake-ass reviewer, um, there's, like, this weird line Right? There's this odd line that you feel like... I don't know, when you look at reviewers online, they seem to be very, very polar, right? They, they're they either a total sunshine, lollipops, rainbows, 10 out of 10, this is the greatest thing in the world, please retweet me, please share my post, Tom King and others. Uh, or they go the angry reviewer route, and everything is, uh, you know, littered with F-bombs and... Uh, all sorts of curse words uh, for emphasis. And it's hard to find a middle ground, and it's also hard to... As someone who tries to keep the middle ground, 
when you veer into the poles, it's, uh, I don't know, you kind of feel like you're not being true, even if you are being true. I, I always worry about, you know, um, provocateering, I guess you should, I could say, uh, where I'm doing, I'm exaggerating just to get attention. And, uh, I assure you I'm not, so it troubles me when I have to be as negative as I've been on something like the Empire miniseries, or when I'm as positive on something like 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 these Hellions books, because it feels like I'm baiting, and uh, I don't know, that's definitely, that is definitely a Chris problem, so we'll keep it close to vest and uh, see how we can do moving forward, but thanks again for uh, sharing your thoughts there, Andrew. We're going to wrap up with uh, Jesse DeJong regarding Empire. He says, good morning, Chris. And to answer your question, coming from someone who read every issue of the Empire series, no, Empire X-Men has zero effect on the rest of the crossover series. And if I recall, at no point does this series or any other crossover titles ever mention the events on Genosha. Bingo. That's pretty much exactly what I thought, unfortunately. And that's unfortunate, right? I mean, they dedicated... Well, they were supposed to dedicate several months to this before the the COVID lapse, but uh, they they I mean they devoted four issues to it, and uh, a bunch of writers and a bunch of artists. So it's very unfortunate, but it's it's not unexpected. I think we've all been around the block a bunch of times with the Marvel cash in tie in phenomenon, and this is just what we come to expect. And in a couple of months, <laughs> we'll be here again. So we'll uh, we'll just keep going. <laughs> Jesse continues. I hope this doesn't spoil anything for you, but there will be something that takes place in issue four that might soften your look at Explody Boy. Well, at least there's one thing to look forward to. I just hope uh, maybe the resurrection protocols will still be too expensive to uh, to use. Uh, Jesse continues. As for the other question, no, I don't think anyone reading the Empire title would feel the need to pick up the X-Men part of this event, whether it be Empire colon X-Men or just the X-Men title. If anything was a money grab, it would be this series. I honestly wish Marvel would put put off for a few years any company-wide crossover so that when they do, it would be more impactful. I mean, could you even imagine ever going back to a time like that where... Hey guys, no crossovers for two years. Could you imagine how great that would be? Just letting writers write and tell the stories they want to tell without having to worry about being derailed every month and a half after another rolling crossover event. I remember DC made an announcement like that a few years ago. It was probably more than a few years ago, but time is flying. And uh, everything since I turned 21 is just like a little while ago. Uh, I remember they made this announcement that they'd be, you know, paying more attention to their individual series instead of partaking in constant crossover mode, right? And they actually, they actually stuck to their word for like a minute or two. And uh, since you know, comic fans on the internet are very hypocritical, I remember fans mocking them for it. It seemed like like Marvel and DC can make the same announcement on the same day, and DC would be mocked for it, and Marvel would be lauded for it. Just seems to be the way things go, and I mean, I'm, I've got no use for either company at this point. But I notice that Marvel gets the free pass more often than not. Now, DC is just like Marvel: multiple events running at the same time, just leading to another slew of events that will all run at the same time. Uh, I don't, I don't think we're ever going back. It's really, really sad, uh, but. 
I'm sure before King and Black is over with, we're already going to know the next two Marvel crossover events. And one of them will probably have already been started. It's ridiculous. I mean, in not too long, we've actually got a uh, an X-Men issue that has the branding of both X of Swords and Empire on it. I mean, how ridiculous is that? <laughs> it's... We are we are tying into two two crossover events. Ah. Jesse continues. I remember how excited I was for Civil War after years of company wide company wide crossovers not being a thing. Civil War may not have been a fantastic series, but I still remember it fondly. They still talk about it today, and there was even a movie made based on its premise. And you know, as much as I hated and continue to hate Civil War for making it so every single Marvel and now DC event needs to have a hero versus hero element, and also eschewing established characterization to make whichever character the writer wants to include fit into their contrived story. I'll admit that it was a novelty. I mean, it wasn't the first after the uh, after the hiatus of crossovers. The first one was House of M, and I feel like that was a primer for Marvel going back into crossover mode, like sort of a, a pilot. It's like, well, let's see, how, let's see if this works. And then a year later, I mean, Civil War hit us like a ton of bricks. Uh, what kind of bricks? Well, I'll leave that to all of you. I know what kind of bricks they were to me. Uh, Jesse wraps up with, There's just not a need to do multiple crossovers in one year, except for the almighty dollar that I will still give them, so I guess I'm part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will fully cop to being part of the problem as well. Um, I've been part of the problem for most of my life, which is pathetic, but it's true. Um, as much as I, uh, I I have problems with you know the exploitation and the multiple crossovers and the you know gotta get them all, gotta read them all sort of a mindset, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I mean we're we're doing these empire books. I didn't need to do these empire books, but we're doing them, <laughs> and uh, we're paying the price. Definitely, definitely part of the problem. Uh, we talked a lot about the four types of fans, right? And I know that I am definitely in group one, which is the person who buys everything. You know, the person who will buy comics if they are comics because they buy comics. So they know that, and they use that, and they exploit that. But I don't see it changing anytime soon, unfortunately. But uh, thank you so much for answering those questions uh, on Empire, and of course for listening and sharing your thoughts. Uh, now, if anyone out there would like to share their thoughts with me, I'm a pretty easy guy to get a hold of. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. We also have xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com, which utilizes the blogger flip card format, which makes it look really, really neat. For uh, obsessive types like myself uh, You can come chat with us about X-Men Anything you want At uh, 90s X-Men on Facebook And you can hear the entire audio archives At chrisandreggie.podbean.com Guess that's where we'll put a pin in it for today Only one more Well, one more miniseries issue of Empire to go We still got a couple after that in the X-Men book But we'll worry about those another time <laughs> I want to thank you all so, so much for hanging out today and sharing your time with me. And as always, till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 85 of X-Lapsed, uh, the long-awaited 85th episode, because now we finally, finally get to put Empire colon X-Men behind us. So, uh, let's not waste any time. <laughs> let's get right into this thing so we can get it uh, checked off the list and uh, put in a long box never to be looked at ever, ever again. So yes, Empire, colon, X-Men number four had an October 2020 cover date. The story is called Unring, and we're going to be talking about ringing and unringing and re-ringing and bell ringing, all sorts of ringing throughout this episode. This one was written by the head of X himself, Jonathan Hickman, with pencils by Jorge Molina and Lucas Warnick. Inks by Adriano de Benedetto and Lucas Warnick. Colors, Nolan Wooded and Rachel Rosenberg. Letters, VCs, Clayton, Cows, Designs, Tom Muller, Edits, Bisa White-Sabolsky, Cover Price, $4.99. Went on sale August 19th, 2020. That's quite a creative team here, right? Um, multiple pencilers, multiple inkers, multiple colorists. You'd almost think that this entire thing was an afterthought. I wouldn't say that, but uh, you might think it. Anyway, let's get into this here. Roll Call. Magic, Scarlet Witch, Angel, Multiple Man, Doctor Strange, Monet, Beast, Nightcrawler, Opal, Edith, Augusta, Lily, and Explodey Boy, followed by a double-page spread of creds. Now we open by picking up from a scene that took place way back in Empire, colon, X-Men number one, which feels like it was absolute ages ago. This is where uh, the Scarlet Witch had just finished ringing a bigger bell. Uh, they're going to be talking about bells being rung and unrung a lot, as mentioned, so let's get used to it. Now, if you remember, she was on Genosha and is responsible for this whole 16 million mutant zombies thing. So now, in this scene, we get a good look at what, you know, the thing that freaked her out so bad back in issue one. And we left her where she was just like, oh no, not you. And, uh, duh, it's a herd of zombies. She struggles for a bit before bugging the F out. Now, she would eventually wind up back at the Sanctum Sanctorum, so Doctor Strange can spend several pages calling her an idiot. She explains what she'd done and how much research she'd put into doing it, but he still thinks that she's a damned fool. And he's not wrong, though uh, he might be a, a hair more annoying than even she is at this moment. She, Doctor Strange is kind of irritating here. Anyway, so... We all know she wanted to undo the whole No More Mutants bell thing, but Doctor Strange said that that bell couldn't be unrung, so he suggested that she might try to ring a bigger bell, which she did, and now, to undo what she'd done here, wait for it, they're going to have to ring an even bigger bell. Bell, 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 ring, ding, ring, ding, bell. Okay, so Doctor Strange agrees to help, but first he has to stop for a sassy chat with Wong, then we're finally off to the races. What it all eventually comes down to, and they're taking a long way to get here, is that whole odd rod that Magic picked up last issue, that one that she was just baffled by its beauty and needed to hold, and, you know, turned her into a demon. First, 
Doctor Strange makes it so the mutant zombies can't leave the island. So there's no way off Genosha for them. Then, this rod will be there for about 30 days, and when it dissipates, so too will Wanda's original, not mutant in origin, hex thingy from issue 1. Wanda wonders what might happen should anyone try and actually go to Genosha within those 30 days, and, uh, hey, we can answer that. If that were to happen, a really awful and forced cash-in storyline might just break out, which is exactly where we are. Also, a stupid-looking giant plant zombie with a cabbage head might start running around the place yelling, Glore, glore, glore. Speaking of which, how about we go to the right now, the here and now, and find out what's going on. We do have, in fact, a giant plant zombie with a cabbage head yelling, Glore, glore, glore. And we get to see how all of our characters react to this monster. And this whole story is being played for laughs. Uh, this is supposed to be a funny haha, and unfortunately, Hickman just does not do it for me when it comes to his attempts at comedy. I know comedy is relative, and you know mileage may vary, but I can't think of a single thing that Hickman's wrote that I've laughed at. Some of the other writers on the Dawn of X stuff I've laughed at, but Hickman, no. No, very try-hard stuff here. So, from Genosha to Krakoa, and Beast continues working alongside... We'll go with Opal. I think I think this is Opal. Which uh, reminds me, uh, when was the last time any of us saw Opal Tanaka? You know, because she was part of some stories even more boring than this one. I wonder if she's still kicking around anywhere. Anyway, so Beast, she, he's continuing to work alongside Opal. And he decides to swipe a bit of her technology while she's not paying attention. Now, it's clarified here that the Horde culture has ma- actually managed to hack the Krakoan gateways. If you remember back in X-Men number 3... That was sort of what they were trying to figure out. And now this enables them to control those gateways so that they can pass through them, despite not being mutants. And they can also apparently turn them off, kind of like they did here with the Krakoa Genosha connection. And I gotta say, this is still a really good portrayal of Beast. Uh, he even looks like a different Beast. He's got like that same like winged hairdo like he had in the 90s. It's a much better Beast than what we usually get. Though, I mean, therein kind of lies a, a problem with... Uh, continuity and and linearity of storytelling, but we'll talk about that later. Anywho, he figures out what makes the horticulture gimmick tick and decides to make use of it himself. And so he opens a gateway and through it walks Explodey Boy. But not the zombie version. This is an already resurrected one, complete with a you know actual non-rotting flesh, and also a jetpack. Beast sends him to Genosha, though I haven't the foggiest idea why. Let's follow Explodey Boy, and we'll go back to Genosha ourselves. Here, the mutants are continuing to dramatically pose while stuff happens around them. Explodey Boy flies in, and it looks like his jetpack might be powered by dirt. It's, it doesn't look like it's propelled by any sort of combustion. It's just like dirt. Though I can't say for sure. He lands next to the Explodey Boy zombie version so they can have a chat. And he tells his undead self that it's just not cool to eat people. To which the zombie vomits all over the place, which isn't funny. Not funny. No. They then talk a bit about, uh, you know, what it's like to be dead and what it's like to be alive again. And this really confuses things for me. Not not so much in the story, but let's go back to the Scarlet Witch. Just what in the hell was she trying to do? What was she even thinking? If Xavier's already resurrecting the victims of the Genosian genocide, then what in all hells was she trying to do? I mean, Xavier hasn't exactly been silent or quiet about what they're doing on Krakoa. 
And I mean, if anyone ought to have some sort of insider's knowledge, it'd be the friggin' Avengers, right? They would know. I suppose I could ask, is Wanda still an Avenger? Or is she just like a wandering lunatic these days? I guess it really doesn't matter. Though, let me just say, uh, I am thankful that the Avengers haven't been shoehorned into every other issue of this run, because uh, the 2010s were a very, very long decade of just that. Okay, so back to the conversation here, the explodey conversation. It goes from the broader sort of a thing to a more personal sort of chat. And I will say, for the first time yet... This series actually feels like uh, there might be some pages in it worth reading. It, it's it's pretty well done here. Uh, the living E.B. tells the undead E.B. about some stuff about it, uh, his home life here. Uh, that they're, he's getting along better with their parents. He had his first kiss with a girl that's totally out of their league. It's, it's a pretty cute thing. Though, it really doesn't make up for the fact that they thought it would be so LOL random to name this kid Explodey Boy. But... All that being said, it's not a half-bad little scene. I, I quite enjoyed it. Now, Living E.B. tells Undead E.B. that this is all going to eventually end, and so that all they can do for the moment is watch Demon Magic fight the giant Glore monster. Undead E.B.'s like, nah, I ain't going out like that, and he asks Living E.B. to hand over the jetpack. They then share a somewhat touching farewell before Zombie Splody Boy launches himself into the Glore monster's mouth and explodes. So, bada-bing, bada-boom, Glore Monster defeated. Now, as the dust settles, Demon Magic continues to proclaim herself as being the Zombie Queen of Genosha, or whatever stupid nonsense she was spouting off about last issue. I mean, is she a godhead? I think she's a godhead. That sounds Hickman-y enough to, to be a thing. But, let's remember what Doctor Strange said earlier in this issue. This whole mess would go away after 30 days. And right now, the clock's ticking. And uh, Doctor Strange actually said that, get this, 29 days, 23 hours, and 59 minutes ago. Oh, how convenient. The clock finally ticks over, the odd rod dissipates, and bingo bango, magic returns to her normal self. Beast looks on and comments about how embarrassing this must be for her, to which she proclaims that she regrets nothing. Now, with the mess over and done with, the mutants head home. And we get four highly decompressed pages because we're approaching the finish line and we gotta at least pretend to justify the fact that you paid $5 for this. Beast basically narrates how important it is to go on living. And we close out with Wanda sitting in her study reading a book and probably figuring out the next way she's gonna concoct something really stupid and ultimately pointless that we will all have to sit through soon enough. Finally, the end. Next episode, finally, X-Factor. But let's, let's get Empire out of the way, at least the, the main miniseries here. And I will start by saying, I'll admit it, I didn't hate this issue as much as the first three. And I actually didn't hate the issue at all. It wasn't half bad, in fact. Um, we really didn't deserve being put through the first three issues to get here, but, I mean, we gotta take the bad with the good, I suppose. Before going into this issue, let's get all the meta stuff out of the way first, right? This story didn't need four issues to be told. This story didn't need to cost 20 American dollars to be read. This story didn't add anything to the greater Marvel Universe, nor to the X-Men. This was still a grift and an exploitation of Marvel and or X-Men completionists. 
If this story absolutely needed to be told, it could have been fit into a single regular-sized issue of X-Men Volume 5. And I mean, we're going to be getting a couple of Empire issues of that coming up pretty quick as well. We'll see that in episodes 88 and 97, in fact. So all that to say, this wasn't worth the price. Anybody who paid full price for this was a victim of theft. And with every sale of this that Marvel made, they were stealing money. Okay? Now, in fairness, I did hear from uh, either Jason or Damien, I believe, uh, when I was reaching out a few episodes ago trying to figure out what people thought of this uh, series because I was afraid I was being too negative about it. I did learn from someone that the X-Men weren't originally going to cross over with Empire, but I guess this was a either an editorial or a marketing mandate, and the fact that we're dealing with plants and so much of the Dawn of X uh, milieu is wrapped up in plants that it would only make sense for the X-Men to be involved in it. So this wasn't the original intention. This is an order that, if what I was being told is accurate, this is an order that came from on high, and uh, the... Dawn of X Brain Trust was just trying to make the best of it, and hey, you know, they, they got four issues out, which is probably what all they were told to do, so I, I can't fault them too much for what happened, because uh, they weren't planning on this anyway, but still, $20 for this, I mean, I paid half price for it, and still, I feel like I was ripped off, so if you paid 20 bucks for it, I, I apologize. I hope nobody did it to follow along with this show. If, if that was the case, I'd feel very, very bad. Okay, now with that all done and dusted, what did we have here? Well, we had a fairly well-told conversation between two versions of the same character. And like I said, it was pretty cute for the most part. But, and this is a Chris problem, I felt it was tempered by the fact that our creators insisted on calling this character Explody Boy. And this is just a Chris problem. I mean, because call him anything else, I'd have been on board. Explody Boy, to me, is way too pandering. It's retweet bait, pure and simple. And I'm sure it worked as such, so I mean, hats off to them. But Explody Boy is just such a stupid name, and uh, not the sort of thing I need in my life. I'm still not quite sure what the in-story point of it was. Like, was the initial intention for the zombie EB to blow himself up inside the Glore monster's mouth? If so, okay. But we've already seen EB blow stuff up twice at this point, so why not just ask him to do it? And do his powers blow him up too, or just his surroundings? I don't know if we've got any clarification on that, or even if it matters. I mean, will we ever see him again? I kind of hope not. Though it wouldn't surprise me to see him in the background of a panel or two moving forward. I, I guess, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Back to Beast... I still quite enjoyed this take on Beast. It's almost like the Beast we're getting here and the one that we're getting in X-Force are two completely different characters. But I gotta assume that our head of X is at least reading X-Force, right? Uh, maybe not, because this Beast is actually written well. What else? What else? Um, Magic. She's kind of annoying here. Uh, I still can't get a bead on what her character is. She's almost written as a parody of the Claremontian strong female protagonist. It feels like she's veered into into parody. Um, though for the most part, this story was an attempt at being funny haha. so for all I know, she was purposely being written as over the top. I don't know. Uh, the old ladies kind of stayed in their own corner here. I don't even know if any of them even got a line of dialogue, not that I'm complaining. 
the Doctor Strange scene, though integral, was kind of irksome. I don't read Doctor Strange. Uh, is he always this much of a snarky a-hole? I, I almost felt like we were reading like Tony Stark dressed as Doctor Strange there for a minute. Or, I guess, is snarky a-hole just like normal gear for Marvel heroes these days? It's like, hey, they like sarcasm in them movies. Let's, uh, let's make everybody sarcastic. Oh, well. It led to a convenient and contrived ending, which I would complain more about if I... You know, if I wasn't in such a rush to get to the end of this mess. Because honestly, any ending would have been better than this continuing on a single <laughs> another issue. Uh, let's wrap up by talking about the art. Um, I really liked it. Once again, going back to the Beast, this was the best he's looked in ages. He actually looked like himself. Instead of having that sort of like furry but bald look, if that makes any sense. Like where it's like... His hair on top is, like, really short. He looks like he's bald, kind of. And, I mean, he looked different here, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. Because, yes, I do like that take. I like this look. But it's also a sign that the artist responsible just didn't care enough to check in with any of the current-day reference materials. You'd almost think an editor or four, or maybe a head of X, might have, like, noticed and said something about it. Which begs the question, should I even bother bringing stuff like that up anymore? I mean, if they don't care, why should I, right? I'm just happy that this isn't Carol Danvers with, you know, where she looked different in every single panel for several years. So this is at least a side thing, I I suppose, you know. I can shout into the wind until, you know, until I run out of shout. But uh, what good would that do any of us? Oh, well. Overall, if you can find the Explodey Boy chat with himself, that's probably worth a look. And I'm sure that that's been tumbled, retweeted, or whatever several times over, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. As for the rest of this issue and series, you don't need it in your life. You really don't. Uh, To put it another way, if you ever find yourself sent to hell, where I'm assuming there will be only two things you can read, and one would be Fallen Angels, and the other would be Empire X-Men. So if you are ever sent to this hell, my advice to you would be read Fallen Angels twice. Okay, now that is... My final word on this miniseries. Let's go to the mailbag here. It's a short one today, just one message. And it's from Damien, and he's talking about Wolverine number three. Damien says, It's weird that this is the last part of a storyline, but doesn't feel at all final. The only resolution is that we learn that Russia is somehow the big villain behind the series. Maybe Vladimir Putin is a vampire and it's all one story. I'm surprised that a Disney company is characterizing an actual country as evil. Do they not buy Disney merchandise in Russia? And I'm glad you mentioned that because I thought I was being too sensitive to it. Because I noticed that every single time in these Dawn of X books, and I don't know about the wider Marvel universe, but it's always Russia. In Marauders, it's Russia. In in X-Men, it's Russia. In Wolverine, it's Russia. I think in X-Force, there was stuff with the, with the Russian armor. Everywhere. Yeah, we, we actually have a uh, Colossus and Omega Red story coming up pretty soon. It does feel very pointed. It feels very weird that Russia is suddenly the safe target for, like, everything. I, I don't understand that. I, I don't know if there's any people from Russia listening right now. I would venture to say no. But uh, if so, uh, please write in and let us know <laughs> what's going on here. How are, the, how are these books being received by uh, you and yours? Because it's uh, it's very pointed. Very, very pointed. Uh, Damien continues. I'm presuming that we're meant to see all the events of the last issue as an illusion created by Quentin Quire to snare the pale girl, but it should have been much clearer. 
Absolutely. Um, because none of that made it. It was so jarring. And I, I think even if you read this all in one go, it still would be jarring. It still wouldn't be very clear because we see, uh, what's his face? Bannister. We see him get gutted. And then the next time we see him, he's okay. And there really is no sort of uh, A to B. It's just like an A then B, not an A to B. It's very, very strange. And the Quentin stuff, I don't. I, we don't know enough about the pale girl. I, and I would figure that, I don't know, maybe I'm just confusing or conflating ethereal-ism with, uh, with, you know, inability to be, um, you know, taken in by illusions here. But, uh, yeah, it was very, very opaque in in the storytelling and was probably something that appeared very clever in concept but in the execution it just uh yeah it missed it missed uh, damien continues talking of the pale girl i really thought they were going to reveal her to be a dream form of the sick daughter when the text page said she couldn't be read by professor x i was sure i was right I really think someone needs to stage an intervention with Benjamin Percy about his text pages. I'm sure he's misread the maximum number of words as a minimum. <laughs> no joke, right? It's a... Uh... <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, the text pages in X-Force are um, a bit much. Uh, I mean, these aren't even X-Force. This is Wolverine, but X-Force is just as bad. I mean, in X-Force, we had a whole scene play out in a te- in a in a text page. Uh yeah, these, uh, these info pages are a bit much. They really are. And they don't really say a whole heck of a lot. I don't know what we were, what we needed from, I believe we had a conversation between the X-Desk and maybe Bannister. I think that I'm from remembering, right? And out of that, nothing really came up. Nothing came up that was really relevant outside of the fact that, okay, they know that he's working with Wolverine. That could have been said in a panel. That could have been said in... Two lines instead of an entire page. Damien continues. Ultimately, I really enjoyed reading this issue, but when you go back over it, there's very little to get your teeth into. It's just a series of fun scenes, well drawn, and I'll take it. And you're right. You're right. This is a this is a beautiful book with a lot of fun scenes. Um, some scenes that were a little cringy. The Magneto getting drunk one, uh, in particular. So yeah, it definitely has merit and it deserves to exist, I guess. If only the story was like a little bit more linear or a little bit more or a little bit less opaque in it in the telling, I think I would have gotten far more out of this uh, than than I did. So uh, I'm also not really looking forward to what's next because vampire stories do not do it for me. So we'll uh, we'll hope for the best. We'll uh, you know keep our fingers crossed and hope that that one comes through a little bit more clear than this one did. Uh, out of the two stories we got in Wolverine number one, um, yeah, I didn't care for either of them, really. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. I was going to say maybe this one was better, but I think I actually enjoyed this one less because of my my vampire uh, you know, aversion, I suppose. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on uh, Wolverine number three, Damien. It's always very nice to hear from you. Now, if anyone else would like to reach out and, you know, say hello or talk about a book or tell me how negative I'm being about uh, Empire colon X-Men and how it's, uh, you know, a solid gold 10 out of 10 in your book, uh, you can do so. You can reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris's on Infinite Earths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. 
You can chat with us about all sorts of stuff over at 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you can check out the complete audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, onward and upward from here. Uh, we got the Empire miniseries out of the way, and uh, we're going to be jumping into the final of our Wave 2 Dawn of X books with X-Factor next episode. Really, really looking forward to finally sinking our teeth into that one. But uh, one more giant thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me today. It, it is absolutely humbling to have uh, such great listeners here. It really, really means the world to me. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.